But that's the thing about running. And that's why I started running. My, my first race, I felt something. I was like, oh my God, this feels something. You know, like you, it hurts, but you can feel something again. You're not numb anymore. And then with running, you know how it is. Like you can always run faster, right? You can always run harder. So forever, you're going to feel something. This is like a hell of a gift. And fortunately, like genetically, I have that ability to keep running and running and running to the point where I can just run really fast and hurt for a very long time and sustain that hurt because that's what really makes me feel alive. It's like a drug. up everyone that was below to asmaram i'm your host mario fraioli and you are listening to the morning shakeout podcast i'm going to keep this intro as short as possible since this is the longest conversation that i've ever had for the show at two hours and ten minutes but i am telling you that you will want to listen to every second of it Belota, who is 43 years old, is an Eritrean American who has called the United States home since the age of 10. He represented his home country of Eritrea in the 5,000 meters at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. In 2004, he finished third in the 5,000 meters at the U.S. Olympic trials, but couldn't go to the games because he didn't have the Olympic A standard. In 2008, he finished fourth in the 5,000 at the trials after some last lap contact keeping him off the team yet again. All these years later, running is still a huge part of Belota's life. He still trains and races locally in the Bay Area where he lives. He coaches and advises a handful of athletes. And he's also the co-founder and co-owner of Renegade Running, a specialty running shop and community hub in Oakland, California, which is actually where we recorded this conversation. We talked about opening Renegade Running during the pandemic, creating an inclusive community, and making running and running apparel more appealing and accessible to minorities and people of color. Belota shared his earliest memories of immigrating to the U.S. He told me how running came into his life and how his relationship to it has evolved over the years. He took me through his ups and downs as an athlete and shared some of his thoughts on the state of the sport and a lot more. Before we get into it, I'd like to thank Tracksmith for supporting this episode of the podcast. Look, training through winter is tough. The dark days, harsh weather, and fledgling motivation will test your commitment. No Days Off is Tracksmith's annual call for patience, persistence, and participation in running. It's not about running every day and never taking a day off, but rather a recognition that little and often beats grand acts of ruinous excess. Doing a little something every day with intention will help you better embrace the elements so you can continue training through the darkest days of winter and reap the benefits come spring. The No Days Off collection is designed to help you weather Mother Nature's worst and feature staples for getting out the door in the most miserable of conditions. Go to tracksmith.com Mario to check out some of my favorite apparel picks and use the code Mario at checkout to get free shipping on your order while also helping support LA Saves Track, a campaign to rebuild the dilapidated track facilities at Los Angeles High School, providing access and pathways to opportunity for the student-athletes at LA's oldest school. 
Recover Athletics has worked with the world's best sports physicians and Olympians like Meb Kofleski to design an app that makes prehab fun and easy. In 90 seconds, the app will customize a program for your body and your training with different resistance exercises, plyometrics, and mobility work. No pills, no potions, no BS, just 100% evidence-based exercises that are easy to follow on your iPhone or iPad. I use the Recover Athletics app multiple times a week for a quick warm-up routine before I go out the door and or post-run band work and single leg strengthening exercises to keep my grumpy left ankle happy. You can check it all out for yourself in my Strava feed. I post all of it right there. The Recover Athletics app is available only in the iOS app store right now by searching Recover Athletics or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes. Your first custom prehab program is free and they have an unlimited free trial. If you like it and want to upgrade, their premium subscription offering costs less than one trip to a PT. Trust me, it is totally worth it. Okay, please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with the incredible and inspirational Belota Asmaram. a good place to start is just where we are right now renegade running at your shop in oakland california you guys opened like the height of the pandemic it was like june july i think 2020 what have the past you know 20 22 months been like for you guys here man it's kind of like just put your head down and move forward you know type of approach really we never even thought about stopping like one day we never thought about like hey are we making a mistake or should we like recalibrate or whatever we were just like hey we started we're moving forward you know and uh, and and it was also kind of like there were a lot of things that we weren't able to finish by the time we we opened like construction wise Mm and we didn't have any inventory really we had like maybe four or five vendors that had given us something and and even those were like on you know we just kind of basically bought the stuff you know like there weren't nobody was like really giving us anything mm-hmm. on terms or anything like that so we just we're just going off of just pure just believing in our in ourselves and what we were trying to accomplish and and just working you know like when you put your head down and just work it's a great distraction you know i mean that's what distance running teaches you is just like just grind it out just put in the miles just do the hill repeats do the weight training it's tedious it's long you don't know where you're going but it's okay it'll all make sense one day you know it's kind of like this weird like you know you gotta have that like a religious thing yeah Yeah, you know that's what it is it's like you know that is my religion in in some ways just just like believe in what you're doing and just like inch away at it you know and um my, my my approach always has been this thing of like um, a long time ago. I remember like when I first graduated from Cal, I went over to Palo Alto, and uh, you know completely opposite, right? It's like different world, pop, man, man. A different yeah. world. But I made some friends out there, you know, and and they were 
they kind of like brought me into their own little world and we, we were like eating different foods and, and doing different things and watching different movies and stuff like that, you know, that you wouldn't really, my friends on this side, because I grew up on this side, so I'm a little biased, like I didn't really embrace myself in the whole like Berkeley culture. I was still kind of hanging out with my old friends and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, when I was in Palo Alto, I was just like, hey man, just be open-minded, you know, just go out there and be friends with people that you would never be friends with, you know? And, and and they were welcoming. Like, all the Stanford guys were just, like, super warm and welcoming. They didn't have that whole, like, Cal Stanford thing that I thought they would have. And they, they taught, you know, they showed us, like, how to make different foods and how to do all this, like, medicine ball stuff, like, hurdle drills. And, I mean, just, like, they were, like, in a whole different world, you know? Is that when you joined the farm team? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Like, we, I joined the farm team, but I couldn't really compete with the farm team stuff, mm-hmm. so nobody kind of like knew we were a farm team but we were a farm team like we we lived I mean we lived there we were coached by Gags and and, and Lenana and then Jack Daniels came also he, he rode like all the longer distance stuff and so so we were part of the family for sure you know and I even tried to join that team while I was still at Cal because I had left early you know I kind of like you know signed a contract or whatever and decided to leave the NC2A stuff and and uh, and actually the coach was super welcoming you know, he welcomed me because the older guy, like Richie Boulay and Magda, Louis Boulay, you know, they all trained over there. And so they were like, Richie was like, no, I'll, t- I'll take you up there and you can come train with us, you know. And at the time, the coach was so open and, and welcoming, you know, to me even, you know. So so I always felt like really welcome over there. But, but, but what I was getting to was uh, I watched this movie. It was a documentary called Baraka. You remember that? That documentary i don't it's just all images and and like and it's just like you're just it's just like these really like captivating footage of like either they're pictures but mostly they're just videos you know and there was this one scene of this buddhist monk just like walking like ringing this bell and just like kind of asking for money but he was walking like so slow you know and he was just taking like perfect steps i mean each step he took took him like i don't know like a minute or something he was just fully present what yeah he, he was, was doing. just exactly he was in the present in the moment you know he was in the moment and that that to me just like it made sense right away i was like dude whatever you do you have to be in the moment i run the five thousand. how many steps do i take in that race I don't know, like maybe 2,500, I don't know, depending on the length of my stride, right? And, but I have to make every single step perfect. I should focus on just taking perfect steps. And the, if I take maybe like 90% of those steps are perfect, you know, that'll be better than, you know, like th- the previous time. And then I think that's just the process that, that I always kind of implemented. Into, like, because distance running, it teaches you especially like when you get up to the marathon training, you go into this like just get it done kind of mentality. Just get it done. Just just grind it out. Let it get ugly, you know? But in the 5,000, the 1,500, and these fast, you can't... It's so precise. You, you can't afford to let yeah. it get ugly. Yeah, you that's, can't be sloppy. Exactly. You, everything has to be like perfect, you know? And that's how Almost you're thinking precise. about the shop when you guys were... That's my mentality yeah. anyways. Like, just do what you're doing and just focus on the little tasks, you know? Every little task, just focus on it and just to try to perfect it. And, and then it will, eventually when it's all done, it'll be like one perfect piece of something. I don't mm-hmm. know, but it'll be something. Yeah, you know? and you had faith that it was going to work out. Yeah, yeah. And, I've st- and we're still building. 
I mean, we're still patching stuff up. We're still, I'm still like, I'm like, I learned so much about construction since we started, you know? Like, I kind of, I did like all this, you know? I, I did the did the baseboards, did the drywall stuff with, with one of the guys I coach. Like, I'm like drilling holes everywhere, you know? It's just like, it's just yeah, like, our listeners can't see the space. You guys have a beautiful space here, and we're yeah. sitting in your recovery lounge, which yeah. is a lofted area above the shop where you've yeah. got one, two, three, you know, four big chairs that people can sit in. I mean, it's it's gorgeous. Like, just the attention to detail here and all the things that you yeah. have for runners in this community is pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Victor has a lot of experience with building spaces out. I mean, he built a couple of, like, amazing, beautiful schools. He turned, like, some dump buildings into just, like, gorgeous classrooms and mm-hmm. learning spaces, you know. And I worked for him, you know, for a brief period. I was, like, his PE teacher in one of his schools when when he ran the two schools in Berkeley. And uh, he just has an eye for that, you know. He, I mean, he, got, he hired, like, this badass architect. You know, she's right down the street. Uh, and she and she, you know, she did an amazing job putting things together, and he did his part. You know, he did it the same way. He just took it one day at a time, just kind of grinded it out, and and we broke completely. Had no money, nothing, nobody would give us a loan. So I like I'm like grinding out, just driving. Like you know, I have like another business, mm-hmm. so I'm like waking up at 3 a.m. taking people to the airport or whatever. You know, just like making my money any way I know how, and just putting all that money into this because I believe in it. You know. So that's just kind of like how we've been doing it. And, of course, you know, family members came through, gave us a little loan here. You know, some banks eventually kind of like gave us, you know, a little bit of a break. But but we've just been like just piecing things together. And our community has been like so supportive, you know, and especially because we had no community. We built all this. You created it. Yeah, like we built it just from the day we opened. Even before we opened, like we... When it was our first, our very first run was like a Wednesday run, a women's Wednesday run. And dude, there were just like wires and cables and it was, this was a construction zone. And we still met here at 6 p.m. It was all women. I kind of just came to open the door for them, left. They did their run. And those women have been like loyal ever since. They come back every single time. They support us, whatever events we put on. You know, they just come and check in. Even if they're not running, they just come say hello, whatever, you know. How long did you guys have the idea for Renegade Running before you actually opened the doors here in mid-2020? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I I never thought of opening a running store. But every time I would run into Victor up in the hills, like I just, he runs in the hills a lot and I do too. And eventually he moved up. Like he actually lives like on one of the trails now. It's pretty cool. And so occasionally I run into him, and he would always be like, "Yo, man, like we should really open up a running store." I'm like, "Well, what, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean?" He's like, "No, nah, man, there's like a way we can do it, and we can have like beautiful clothing and and just like you know recovery stuff, and just build a nice little community to go with it, and just." And I was like, "Beautiful running." clothing what are you talking about <laughs> there, that exists he was like yeah and i mean there's some like really high quality fabrics out there you know like shoes and i'm like because you know i was like a nike athlete pretty much all my career yeah so i just wore whatever they gave me and i didn't even think about it i just put it on ran in it when it got old gave it away or threw it away you know well even beyond that just yeah. in the industry for the longest time it was just the big brands yeah it was the nikes the new balances the asics the reeboks you yeah. name it there weren't such a thing as 
boutique running brands as we have now with yeah. the Tracksmiths, the Wazels, the Soars. I mean, you you name it. I mean, yeah. you go go up and down, no, you're right. up and down the list. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I really didn't get it. I just believed in Victor because I've seen what he did with the schools. Mm-hmm. But but the the piece that got me to to go along with it was because I've been trying to get into coaching and management for a while. You know. So I thought I, uh, this was like a way for me to get into that. Also, have like an actual physical space where my athletes can come and do their recovery routine, mm-hmm. or kind of like it'll be like a slash like office also, you know, where I can kind of have meetings and meet with other like you know runners and just kind of like a create like a, like hub. a hub, you yeah. know, for for other clubs too. Not just this is not this is not exclusive places. You know, the other guys, the other clubs, they come here and they shop here, they hang out here, they do our runs, you know. Yeah, so that's kind of, I was like, yeah, I can do that. As long as Victor does all that apparel stuff and the shoe stuff. Yeah. But then when, when one day he like showed me this um, Satisfy brand. I don't know if you're familiar with Satisfy. Not. I was like, yeah, I get it now. I mean, this stuff is like beautiful, you know. Like you put it on and it just feels like it's a part of your skin already, you know. It's like it's made like tights. I have these tights that are like made from silk or something, you know. And the lining of the short is just like, you know. It's very thoughtful. You're just like, I get it now. Super deliberate. Yeah, you're like, okay, this makes the whole running experience much more like pleasant. It looks good. It feels good, you know. So I get, I get the whole idea of kind of wanting people not wanting to wear like dorky shorts anymore. You know, you don't have to. You can wear like some cool looking stuff actually and get out there and 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 um and have and have a good performance you know uh so so i appreciate that and there obviously we don't even we can't even keep that stuff on the shelves and it's the most expensive stuff dude those tights are like they're like 180 dollars like a jacket is like 300 bucks yeah, it's dude. Not cheap. It, it sells you know because people like when they touch it they'd be like I, this is this is good and it lasts it, yeah forever it doesn't even like you know maybe like you know the the vinyl will peel off or something after a few too many washes yeah but the fabric is solid you know the right. stitching all that stuff it never irritates you know you, so there's value to that you know it's just and this for me it's it's valuable information because i'm it's so foreign to me mm-hmm. and i've been i've been a runner pretty much since i was what 13 14 years old but mostly around the elite side of the sport well, I mean, I'm a high school kid, you know, I'm just wearing T-shirts and yeah. I bought stuff from Ross, you know, like I didn't care. And then, you know, at Cal, we were broke. We didn't have fancy stuff like the other Nike schools, you know. So we kind of just wore T-shirts and shorts and whatever, you know. We didn't really have, you know, the the, the higher quality things like mm-hmm. like Stanford. We used to look at them. They're like, dude, these guys got rain jackets. They got hats. They got tights. They got gloves. They got watches. Dude, we didn't. You Not know, a cow. We, we had like these heavy hoodies, champion hoodies, you know, back in the day. That, that was like our warm-up get-up. And then our uniform, we had to like return it. In the beginning, we had to return it after every, like high school, you know, you had to return it after every competition or something. Yeah. And, then after, and then it became after every season, you know. So we were like, I mean, we were scraping by at Cal. It was a rough, rough times over there, you know. Because it, it was not, Cal is not, it's not like, a, they call it, I guess they say it's not funded, whatever that means. Yeah. So they don't have the kind of money, you know, to really. They don't have that, like, big, you know, shoe and apparel contract with Nike or some other brand. They've actually got to purchase it themselves. So they've got to make it last for a few yeah, years instead yeah. of, you know, giving someone a new kit year in and year out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember we were talking about, you know, Peter Gilmore. He, uh, he, he placed really high at regionals one time. I think he got like fifth. And he didn't make it to NCs. It was ridiculous. In cross? In cross country. Really? 
It was so weird because, I mean, the people that beat him were like Meb, Avdi, and then there were uh, Brad Hauser, one of the Stanford guys, and Nathan Nunner, and then it was him. These are like studs, you know? And he didn't make NCs. It was, it was unheard of, you know? So anyway, our coach realized the value of that. And he was, our coach was a sprint coach. He was also the Olympic coach like mm-hmm. twice, you know, Irv Hunt. So, but he still watched us very closely. He understood cross country and distance running. And, and, and he was proud of Peter and he wanted to like, you know, reward him. So well, he said, what do you want, Peter? And, and, he, and he, got him a, he got him a pair of Jasari spikes. I remember those with the yeah. permanent spikes in them, yeah. ceramic. That was big. We were like, damn, Peter got some Jasari's from Herb Hunt. Huh? Oh, my God. Like, nobody gets that kind of attention, you know? So it kind of inspired us to just, like, work harder and yeah. do better. And next year after that, I got, I got some Jasari's. And actually, it was it was great because I broke the school record in those shoes. Yeah. And I still, I mean, I had them till very recently. Were they the fluorescent ones, the the they, bright they like pink color. and green? I yeah. think. Yeah. Like two-tone. you know, all a bunch of world records were being broken in those back in the day. Oh like yeah. Daniel Coleman and mm-hmm. you know Sean El Garouche wore those. Like I mean, everybody wore those things. Yeah. 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 They're amazing shoes. Back to the conversations you and Victor had in the hills of Oakland. What are we talking in terms of a time frame? Is this like 2019 that you guys are starting to have these conversations? And when did you ultimately say, let's do this? We're going all in on this running shop idea. The the first time we talked about it was I wasn't even working with him yet. So it was about like 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. And then... And then I started working with him, and he would mention it briefly. And then I, and I, you know, and I left the school. We kind of didn't see each other for a couple of years. Yeah. Then, then so like around 2015, 16, you know, he would mention it. And then every time I see him, he would have like a different name for it or something. He'd be like, "Yeah, I'm gonna call it Red Feather or something." And I'd be like, "What does that mean?" And he'll tell me the history of it or something. And then, then finally, it was 2000, I think 19, or 18 or 19. Um, he was shutting down the school and it just kind of happened pretty abruptly like he was in the process of kind of transferring it to someone else but it, it just it just happened you just had to shut it down and he was then he called me so we talked about it and i happened to be at that point where i kind of was like ready to kind of move on and do something else so and and i was we were actually trying to get you know my friend shannon rovery like kind of to to join us too because she was also kind of getting to that point this might be my last year of running competitively I want she moved move. back here to the Bay Area yeah, yeah she's in San Francisco okay yeah yeah so I always you know when she was I, I always help her train like we haven't linked up since the pandemic actually since the shutdown that was the last workout we did and we haven't even seen each other since you know we just kind of text here and there or whatever but so you know so we were trying to kind of you know get some other folks to kind of come in with us or whatever but you know everybody has their commitments and and, I, and I, especially for her it's very uncertain times you know she's had a kid towards the end of a contract olympic year you know so many variables mm-hmm. you know so basically it was just the two of us and and that was it so 2019 when the school was shut down completely he was like i'm ready to do this and again he had a different name for it at that time he calls it like protest the running company or something you know and then, like, you know, and then I was like, cool, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. To me, it doesn't matter what it's called. As long as I'm doing something with you and I get to do this part, this piece is, like, what I want to do, you know? How'd you guys land on Renegade? 
he the, again he like called me like a week later he was like you know what? i've been thinking about the name i want to change it and then he was like you know he belonged to like a uh a, 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 i think it was a soccer team back in the day when he was young and it was called renegade mm-hmm. something you know and the guy that ran the whole club was kind of like his mentor and they still keep in touch so he kind of wanted to keep that and like pay homage to yeah, him. yeah and uh and i mean renegade is cool too you know like, that's a great name. Yeah, it's a great, a great name. A great. I know when when it's translated into other languages, it doesn't sure. translate very well. Yeah, but in so, English it works. You got two yeah. R-lettered yeah. words. It rolls off the tongue real yeah. easily. It's easy to remember. Yeah, yeah. I've tried to tell you know a lot of you know, a, lot, a big Eritrean Ethiopian community here, and they come to the shop and and they always tell me like, what is it? What does it mean? And I tell them and. I can't really tell them, and then they look good up, and they're like, but that's a bad thing, right? Isn't a renegade like a bad person or, or bad, you know? And I was like, well, It can have really. that connotation, yeah. but it could be taken in a positive way, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. But in most, like, when you tra- directly translate into other languages, it just comes off as like, like, yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, it can be a bad person but, or a bad thing, but it, it works. You How'd know? you guys settle on this location? Because you're right on Grand Avenue, like in the heart of Oakland like this is as urban as it gets like we're right in the city here was it a very intentional choice to be in this neck of the woods I mean we were we wanted to be like right across the street from the lake and um yeah Lake Merritt's right there yeah that was kind of our thing we thought about looking at spots on the other side of the lake you know by where uh Gold's Gym used to be Mm -hmm. it's called SF Fitness now and um they were so expensive and nothing was available and and then we we started looking at this bike this bike shop right here it used to be a bike shop it's like two blocks away right here and we were i mean we we were ready to go over there but there was a family kind of like ownership thing and the father died and they just couldn't get all the siblings to come together so they just kept delaying and delaying and then our agent like just found this place and this place used to be two separate shops you see uh, that so you see this big beam this big here beam, yeah it was a wall Okay. That's why we have two doors and we have two addresses. It's like forty three and forty five grand. Ah, uh, I got you. Yeah. Okay. So, so she found this place and she and then I actually took a break and went back to Eritrea at the time, and because I had to do some construction stuff over there. And and Victor just I, he called me. He's like, dude, man, those people are not responding. But I found this other spot. And then he sent me pictures of it and everything. And he was like, it's right by Farley's. Like Farley's was kind of like you know. And dude, back back before the pandemic, there'll be. This sidewalk is just constantly jammed with people. Mm-hmm. Just walk into the coffee shops back and forth. Yeah, it's a lot right on this yeah. stretch. Yeah, I mean, there's Pandora, there's Caltrans, there's Kaiser. You know, all these. So it's a it's a like awesome location. You know, when things, uh, uh, you know, I'll eventually get back to normal, like this will make sense again. You know. Yeah. But, but for us, it was just like wow. It's one block away from the lake. It's amazing. Let's do it. You know. And luck, and we got lucky, you know. And uh, our agent's awesome, you know. She she did. There were two of them at the time, but 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 she always comes and visits us and stuff. And she she just vouched for us. And 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 the tenants, you know, Victor did his thing, and they believed in us, and they gave us a space. What were your initial goals when you opened the shop? You talked about how Victor was showing you some of the higher end apparel and just how nice it was, mm-hmm. and you could separate yourselves in that way. But you've also built big community here. Yeah. Is that one of your original intentions? Well, that was the main intention, really. 
was to to build a community. I mean, that's really like what. Did you feel it was lacking here in Oakland specifically? Big time, big time. I mean, because we do have other running stores, you know, but no one really has the time or the energy to do it. Because, you know, we, we always went to transports. You know, Richie was one of the owners of transports. And that was like my running store. I grew up in San Francisco, so I went to Hoy's store all the time. And Hoy's, actually, Victor used to train and run with Hoy's, Hoy's, Hoy, Hoy Sports back in the day. Their son is like one of my best friends, you know. He's like a big brother to me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I love, I love, like, the community we had at Hoy's was, was amazing. Because as a kid, that's where I went to get information. Like if I had like shin splints or, or I didn't understand a certain kind of shoe or a workout. That was a hoist source. Yeah, there was the guys working there were all runners. They were smart. They knew what was going on. They can tell you everything you need to know about spikes and shoes and races and workouts. They organized runs. You know, they went on these crazy like 20-mile runs. They all worked out at Kizar. So you can always just go to Kizar, which was like two blocks away from Hoy Sports. And, you know, me as a little kid, just growing up in the Fillmore, like, that's, and I, you know, the Boys and Girls Club was right there. It was just, it was my neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. and it had a running store. You know, it was just normal, yeah. right? And you come to the East Bay, it's like, you know, oh, a running store in the East Bay, transport, let's go. But it's like, well, they got shoes, they got things you need, but they don't have that extra little, like, well, what's going on? Like, can I come here and link up with other runners? And sometimes you can. There were other runners that worked there all the time, ex-Cal grads or whatever, yeah. you know. And and Richie worked there, so that was big. You know, I mean, there's nobody better than Richie to give you some tips on. Yeah, sub-four-minute miler. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah actually, class runner. and he was sponsored at the time, So and, and he kind of helped out at Cal when I, when I eventually made his Cal. And he was the nicest guy in the world. I mean, he would come by and he would bring, like, extra pairs of shoes to give us, you know, like racing flats or T-shirts, whatever, you know. He was just, like, the ultimate, just, like, big brother, you know. He took care of us, showed us the trails. He kicked our asses. He'd come to workouts and just tear everybody apart, you know. So so that element of it was there. But it's just Richie, just one guy. Of course, Magda kind of worked there, too. But, but it's like, it wasn't like Hoy's, you know, where... You, I mean, there was just, maybe it was the time, too. Back in the day, there wasn't internet or all these things to just kind of give you a sense of community. Right. Like, you know, people feel you had real to go out connected. And talk to people. Exactly. Yeah. You had to go and read the track and field news magazine. Like, you got to go get it from Hoy Sports. Like, oh, man, let's see the, the <laughs> rankings. <laughs> you know how it is. No, I, I remember. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that much younger than yeah. you. Yeah. So it's not like you could just, you know, go to, what's, what's the website? Let's run.coms and. Yeah. Whatever is out there now, I don't even know, but you know, so so that was that, and and now, yeah, most people think a running store doesn't make sense anymore because because there is that, you know, there is the internet option, or people can buy shoes from the, the running warehouse or or just online, right? But dude, you can't you can't get the the community though, you know, you can't just come and hang out physically. like real community. Yeah, yeah, I. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and that's yeah. that's why I've been a staunch supporter of specialty running stores. Mm-hmm. I mean, for as long as I've known about them, which is high school as well, and then I worked yeah. in one, managed one uh, for a few years out of college because mm-hmm. it really can and should be the hub of, of the community, a yeah. real community where people can meet. I mean, obviously, COVID has complicated things, but where people can meet, mm-hmm. you know, 
one, two, three times a week, go for group runs, get to know each other, get yep. to know the people in the community and, and have that like in their actual backyard yeah. and not just rely on whatever their online community yeah. is or the ease of buying a pair of shoes from an online retailer. Um, and, and I feel like the, the pandemic, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I feel like the, the pandemic has really pushed a lot of people toward, you know, certainly from a commerce standpoint, buying things online and then also, you know, leaning into their online communities because it's been hard to get out. But I mean, I feel like that's why these types of stores like Renegade Running that you have here are more important than Mm -hmm. ever, because at some point we're going to be out the other side of this. And if people are still spending all of their time Mm -hmm. on the Internet and aren't getting out into their local community, supporting the local shops, then Mm -hmm. I I really worry for just kind of the, the future of our world really big time yeah i mean it's important to to support the local um it's just not like most people think like well i volunteer at the you know local charity or the event or whatever and and i you know donate money to this cause whatever they they kind of see that as like it's a hands-off approach to just kind of like doing your part as a community member but really like nobody really understands the, the importance of like local small shops and how important they are to the community you know and what they contribute like they're not just there trying to make money you know they they make they make the community more f- full you know like like i love like i love going to the butcher yeah i can go to whole foods you know i can go to a grocery store but i love the butcher there's an art form there you know he can tell you about the different cuts of the meat, and he's a craftsman. Yeah, you just gotta you gotta appreciate that, you know. And I love that, and I make a deliberate effort to go to the local butchers, you know. And it's the same thing with with running, right? Yeah, you can get all your other stuff, you know, online or whatever. But too, when you come here, you know, you can try the shoes on, you know. And we do have a lot of people who just come and try the shoes on here and then go buy it online. Yeah, you know? <laughs> you have I mean, that's been, ha- that's been happening for as long as the Internet's been around. Yeah, so there's that, that aspect of it. But it's okay. Either way, it's fine with us. Like, I'm glad we can still provide you that service. I'm glad we can still get you on the road out there running. Because eventually you are a part of our community, whether you like it or not. The running community is, it is pretty small, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. It's global, you mm-hmm. know. Like, everybody kind of either runs or walks so so you know so it don't expect everybody to just go to a running store to get a pair of shoes come on you yeah. know but 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 in that sense like the people that yeah the, this covid has allowed i'm i'm a victim of that like yeah i'm i'm kind of an introvert you know i like my i'm not the most social guy out there and it has my brother makes fun of me all the time he's like you loving this covid thing huh you love not shaking people's hands and not my giving wife hugs saying and, the same thing. and i was like yeah you're right because i'm not the, the, the handshaker type or yeah. you know hugging them. yeah so it, it has given people an excuse to kind of go further into their little into their hole you know, their hole which is Ultimately, it's not healthy. We're social beings. We got to get out there and socialize. And you just have to pick and choose your, your, you know, when you do it and how you do it. But be social, you know. And and runners in general have similar personalities. You know that. You know we have a bunch of extroverts too. But most most runners are pretty private. Mm-hmm. They prefer small groups. Yeah, and, generally reserved. Yeah, and- intimate kind of conversations. You know, they're not like the, like they're. I mean, of course, they're just like everybody else. But generally, distance runners, I'm, I'm generalizing. Yeah. Most distance runners kind of have that, that, that personality. So, yeah. One of the unique 
things about your shop and where it's located is you are in a very diverse community. I mean, you're African-American, Victor's Latino. This entire like part of Oakland here is generally pretty diverse and running has a reputation somewhat rightfully as a white person sport, an affluent white person sport. How have you guys tried to really change that narrative with what you're doing here at Renegade Running? Um, well, that, that was initially well, one of the things that when I told you that Victor was telling me that was actually clothing out there for everybody and it looks good. That was to me, that was like, okay, this is how I'm going to get my black women to get out there and feel good in, in their bodies. Because you know, most stuff is not made for black bodies. You know, like black women or, or darker women or, or non they just have more curves and mm-hmm. different body shapes, which is made differently, you know? So a lot of stuff doesn't fit black women, you know? It, and, and, it's, and now I want to know, like, I want to get them to know that there is stuff out there that will work for you. There is stuff out there that's going to make your body look fine, you know? And you'll, be, you'll feel good out there. Right? Same thing with guys, guys. I used to get mu- fun, made fun of all the time wearing these short shorts. You'd be like, oh, look at you in your short shorts, you know? So I used to wear, like, tights under my shorts all the time because I was so self-conscious, you know? And, but eventually you grow out of it, you know? But and, and, and this is the guy's saying, you know, now I wore bodysuits, right, yeah. in the 5K. So, oh, we're going to get into that right? later so in this like, conversation. <laughs> yeah, but, but so that, that, that kind of does, it does actually help, you know. When people feel good in their bodies and they look good and they're wearing something that actually doesn't, kind of like that, that either complements their body shape, they also feel good out there and they're motivated right. to get out there and stay out there, you know? So, so I think that uh, we get, yeah, dude, you should see our women, and most of them are black women. That come here, you know. So it, it, it's, a, it's, it's it's special to me because I'm a black man. By the way, I don't consider myself African American, but I am black. I'm a black man. I'm African from Africa, Eritrean. So I'm an Eritrean American. Mm-hmm. Just a little tangent there, but I you know, it gets kind of weird. That distinction. Yeah, when people say I'm African American, I say, well, you know, I reserve that. I I, I see that as an ethnicity, and I and as ethnicity specific for folks that are. Black folks in America is kind of like people in the islands or African, you know, black Americans yeah. of the U.S. Like, I don't consider Barack Obama African-American. He's a black American or he's biracial, but he's not of, you know, that ethnic group. So there's a difference between racial groups, ethnic groups, in my mind anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was an African-American studies major at Cal. Most people probably would disagree with me, but that's how I kind of distinguish between racial categories and ethnic categories, you know? I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, and I see it all the time in applications. Like, what ethnicity are you? And it says black. And you're like, okay, well, black is not an ethnicity. You know, if anything, it's a racial category, right? And, and, and even there's only one race, really. Like, there's a human race. But within those races, like we decided to categorize these the, the race based on color or whatever. Yeah. And not to go off on so. too much of a tangent, but I think a lot of those words, probably because of laziness, if mm-hmm. we're being honest, end up just becoming synonymous with one another. Exactly. black, yeah. African-American. I mean, it's, it's oh, it means the same thing. It's like, yeah. no, well, if you actually break it down, what you're doing for me now, yeah. and I appreciate that, um, there, there is a difference yeah. um, in the connotation and how it's used. It does, yeah. And it's respect for me. It's like a big, huge respect for the African-American community, for the black Americans, you know, who fought for that identity, you know. They've, they said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take the agency. We're going to 
identify ourselves. And we don't want to be called black anymore. We don't want to be called Negro Americans anymore. We're going to call ourselves our ethnic identity is African American. You have to respect that. Because me as an Eritrean man, we fought over 100 years to be called Eritreans. Mm-hmm. You know? And I'm an Eritrean man living in America. So I'm an Eritrean American. You know? And, and a lot of black Americans don't have that luxury. They don't know where part of Africa they came from. Mm-hmm. They can't say I'm Nigerian or I'm... Even those borders were constructed by colonial, you know, powers anyway, right? So even those borders are random and weird. But us, you know, as Eritreans, we made that border ourselves and we fought for it. And, and we... So at any opportunity we get, we're going to say, I'm Eritrean. Like, you see Meb, mm-hmm. he's American. I'm American, Opti's American, but you see Meb, he will, he will throw that flag up there any opportunity he gets. Because he's at heart, he's an Eritrean, he was born there, you know? Most of us are. People are Irish, Americans, you know, whatever, right? America is that, right? We, can't, we all came from somewhere else. Yeah, we all tie our identity to somewhere. Exactly, yeah. But at, but at the end of it all, you know, uh, it's still, yeah, you just, it's all about respect. It's not about like, I, I, it's not like uh, I'm... I'm not trying to distinguish myself from other people as if I'm better than them or something, you know? It's like, it's, it's, it's out of respect. Well, I thank you for educating me on that. Yeah, sure. But yeah, we can get back to the other topic, sorry. <laughs> well, you were talking about how you have a lot of black women who come yeah. into the store here. And it sounds like they feel like this is a store for them, where they can talk to someone who looks like them, who understands them, but they can also buy products that are made for them. Yeah. And that's really unique, especially in specialty running here mm-hmm. in the United States. Definitely. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's a safe space for, for black women, and that's big. Because, you know, black women, they don't feel safe in many places. So I'm just happy to see that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. And it, it is a diverse place in a way. I mean, I know everybody historically kind of seen Oakland as like a black town or something but i mean come on it's diverse as it's hell it's pretty diverse yeah there's white people there's asians i mean it's chinatown over here you know it's like it's every everybody chinatown is only like three four blocks away from here you know so so like so it is very diverse we try to accommodate everyone we try to welcome everyone and 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 i think that's the thing is like i think running does that you know and and you, and you said it was like it is it most in america maybe yeah, a lot of white folks do it, you know? But, I mean, some of the best runners in the world are black, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we... And not from America. And not from America, yeah. It's kind of weird in that way. But, I mean, it's not... I, I don't want to get into that topic because everybody thinks it's genetics, you know? And I'm completely against... Of course, genetic plays a role. Just like when you look at Ryan Hall... He's a fucking runner. I mean, sorry to cuss, but he's genetically a runner. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of white folks that are genetically runners. Just like there are a lot of Kenyans that are genetically runners. Dude, the amount of runners that are in Kenya, right, that are runners and good runners is so tiny. And then you know about Kenyan runners. Mm-hmm. They come from one major ethnic group, the Kalenjin and mainly, right? We got a few Maasai's now, you know, they're a lot bigger, they run the shorter events, yep. and uh, they were mostly like 400 meter hurdlers, you know, uh, like... That's from a very holders. specific area of Kenya, and it is exactly. a very small area it as is. far as like landmass goes. Yeah, when you look at the whole population, it's like, I'm sure it's a tiny, tiny population, but, but uh, I'm sure if you brought the, the opportunities that are in America and you took them to Kenya, you will have very little amount of Kenyans running. 
you know, because, you know... It, I believe that. Yeah. So genetics plays a role in it. It's a factor for sure. Some people are runners, some people are not. Some people are football players, some people, you know, you just genetically. But, but aside from that, more importantly, I think it's the other factors that make people dominate certain fields, just like in America, you know, back in the day, there were Jews dominating sports, right? Boxing or whatever. Then they were, you know, Irish, whoever, Italians, and then, and then you know, black folks. Whoever's going to, you know, have to do the dirty work is going to do it. Like, look who fights mostly, you know, Mexicans. A lot of Mexicans have to fight, you know, poor Mexicans, right? Like, from, from like, that, there, there's mm-hmm. a culture of it there because of, the, yeah. Well, it speaks to the importance of environment, yeah. environmental factors on, on all of those sorts yeah. of things. Yeah, exactly. Um, because in a, in a given place, if that's what people do, mm-hmm. that's what people see. And people want to be what they what they see and i think that's why one representation is important but two if we want to grow running we need to bring it to a place and i think i mean what you guys are doing here aside from just selling product and and building communities you're really bringing running into the heart of oakland and people see it you're flying your flag right outside and get running people are going to come in and be like what's going on here how do i get how do i get involved and that's how you know environmentally then you know, Oakland here, right in, the, right in like the heart of yeah. downtown, kind of becomes a, a bit of a hub for runners of, of all races, creeds, ideologies, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think running has that, that power, you know. Yeah. I want to pivot and get into your story okay. a bit. We talked before hitting record on the mics here how you came to the U.S. at the age of 10 from Eritrea. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear you recount some of your earliest memories of coming over here and what your family's journey was like. Um, yeah, I came, my brother and I, uh, we came, we were, he was 12, I was 10. So my mom somehow got this tourist visa for like underage kids through one of her friends. And you know, back then it was, the war was like getting really bad. and. And, what uh, year is this? Just in to 1989. Give us a time frame. Okay. So 1985 or so, we almost came also, but it didn't work out. You know, things kind of got funky between my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. So that trip was canceled. And then later, my mom found this visa in 89. And that's it. It was over the summer break. We got snatched up. We were told to go to the capital city of Ethiopia. Back then, there was no, no Eritrea. It was, yeah. it was Ethiopia. So mm-hmm. we were all Ethiopians. So we went to there. To Addis. To Addis, yeah. yeah. We went to Addis two weeks later. My mom, you know, already had the passports all worked up. And she put us on a plane and just sent us off. Just to, you know, just my, the two of you. Just the two of us, yeah. And we were like, where are we going? She said, you're going to go see your father. And we were like, okay, well, what about you? She said, I'll see you six months later. I'll come in six months. Just you, your dad is waiting for you. You guys got to go. And we were like, and then, you know, she gave us some real talk too. She's like, look, your brother's getting older now. And pretty soon they're going to try to take him into the military. So I have to get you guys out. And your daddy's waiting for you guys. So for us, it was like, cool, we get to, and like me, I don't remember my dad. He was in jail when I was a baby. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, bro- he broke out of jail and, and ran away. So um, he was waiting execution. All his friends got killed. But they decided to keep him alive because he was he had status. So they were using his his rank or whatever to get products yeah, and things like that. To their that. advantage. Yeah. yeah. So they kept him alive for as long as possible. But he got lucky because one of the, you know, they the the, the guerrilla movement back there. The, the you know they they used to come in and do hits. You know, they do they were assassins. So mm-hmm. they would come in disguised as something and they'll assassin a certain general or a certain whatever a key player. 
And while they did that, they came in. They actually went inside the prison, disguised as something. They got my dad out, and then then he helped them get out. You know, so so they did that, and then my dad left. So I I I'd only know my dad through letters and phone calls. You know, and he'll send us things every whatever. And so we we had like this really. I there was nothing more that that I wanted than to meet my dad. So it was easy for me to let go. You know, mm-hmm. my mom was like, "You're gonna go see your dad." I was like, "Let's go." You know, so I got on the plane. And then... Um, Where'd you land? Uh, first, we, we, the first stop was in Jeddah, you know, Saudi Arabia to fuel up. So we were like, okay, what's going on? Then we went to Frankfurt. And then in Frankfurt, um, my brother was practically just like... He, my brother, believe it or not, he could not get in a car for like more than 30 minutes without throwing up. He got car sick. In a plane, forget it. Every time we went to Ethiopia on the plane, you throw up. Everywhere. Bad news. Yeah. We used to take these resort trips, you know, to go down to the Masawa, which is like a resort town. And Eritrea, throwing up. The bus has to stop three times just for him to throw up, you know. My brother's a pilot now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's the irony of this thing, right? That is, that is very ironic. Yeah, so, so we're at Frankfurt, you know, and I'm, my brother's practically dead at this point because he's been throwing up the whole time. And I'm dragging him all along the airport and there's like about 15 other kids because this is a tourist visa for underage kids Mm -hmm. and we all have this bib with all our info there and there are these like flight attendants that kind of like escort you yeah they just keep you in this little group and my brother's falling back and i'm dragging him and 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 the kids are running and then of course then the hostess you know the flight attendants they they basically took take you to your terminal so all these 15 kids became like four because there were, there were a couple of other kids going to, like, Texas or whatever. We went to San Francisco. That 13-hour flight from Frankfurt to San Francisco, that thing was, like, eternity, you know? And then my brother's completely dead at this point. We arrived in San Francisco. Some random people who they said were our uncles, whatever, picked us up. I don't speak a word of English. So my brother does all the talking. Does he but speak he's, English? Well, he's better than me. Okay. So I would have to like I, I, at this point I have him in the cart, you know those carts you get at the airport. Yeah, uh, that's where I'm. The luggage the baggage. Cart. Yeah, I put him in the baggage. He's like dead, you know. I'm pushing and I pick him up like this, and he talks, and I put him back down. She asked me a question. I pick him up. He talks. <laughs> so finally, we got out of the airport somehow. Our uncle, uh, his name was Bruno, Bruno Di Bello. That's the, he's like he's he's my mom's oldest brother, and uh, he's been here since like the '60s. Just super like gangster like you know he used to be like he just he was into some a lot of stuff but he picked us up from the airport you never met him before never just by name yeah. you know just everybody knew him because he was the cool guy he was in the navy back in, when we were back in ethiopia mm-hmm. and he's a good looking guy everybody loved him whatever we just hear all these stories about him he took us and he didn't take us home with him that day my aunt my father's little sister she lived in san francisco so they put us there she happened to be gone she went to the to the to the war to visit her brother and sister where the guerrillas were you know hanging out the at this time they were called the eritrean um uh, people's liberation front you know that's the party that rules the country now so she went to to visit them and you know you have to go to sudan kenya all these like you know weird trips across the nile all this crazy stuff she was there so we just had nobody. Like, we just random people around us. But nevertheless, that's the community. The, my story, I'm telling you now, is the story of so many kids, mm-hmm. you know? So many immigrants, you know? So, so then we just settled in San Francisco. And uh, my brother uh, was 69 pounds when we arrived. 
and he's two years older than me, and I was I was eighty nine pounds. So just imagine, you know, mm -hmm. we're skinny little boys, but he was sixty. He was like practically emaciated. Yeah, yeah he could. He didn't get up for like two or three weeks. He was just on this. Oh yeah. man. Yeah, and finally he got back to you know walking or whatever. But I was out and about, just exploring the city, just you know, and uh, with my uncle, and told me it was my uncle. He is my uncle. I know for sure now, you know, and uh, so then my dad, our dad came a couple weeks later. No, actually about a month later. And um, then, you know, that was it. Dad came. We we're like, cool, we're fine, you know. And um, we went out for his birthday. Guess, guess what? It was? The earthquake, 1989. Earthquake. Oh, the, was that the Loma? Yeah. The, the Loma Alta one? Or was, what it, was it on the uh, 17th mm -hmm. of October and the World Series game? Yeah, the World day. Series earthquake. That's, yeah. Dude, yeah, it was fucking That's the one that took the highway down. Yeah, the Bay Bridge went yeah. down. 880 over there was collapsed and everything. Even our exit to our house, like in, on Fell Street exit to, to Fillmore, that was the exit. That whole ramp just collapsed. You know, they just Crazy. kind of removed it about 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah, it was just there. Like it became like a public garden or something, you know. But uh, it's like Hayes Valley, you know what it is now. So anyway, basically, we were just there. And, and our dad came and it was we were complete again. We were happy for a few months and then he left. And then we were just on go, our own again. Did he go back? Well, yeah, he lived in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and he was trying really, he was trying hard to come and stay with us and be a dad and make things happen. But you know, in America, you just can't come and live and work. You know, you need green card, you need, right. you know. And we didn't even have, we still had a tourist visa, so our dad basically was gone. And my mom, you know, she kept saying six months after six months after six months, like three years went by, nobody came. And my young aunt, our aunt, you know, my she's 25 years old got accepted to medical school she was like i can't take care of you guys so she put us in a foster home and uh and then in the foster home was like probably the best thing that ever happened to us most people have like these horror stories about their foster homes man we were lucky we 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 had a beautiful family you know like basically <clears throat> the woman was uh she's from alabama like black woman you know american and she raised a bunch of other kids from Africa before us. So she knew our struggles. She knew what we needed. She, she created like a nice safe space for us. And uh, there was an older Eritrean girl there. Uh, and then a, a, there was an Ethiopian boy there that was our age. So he, was, he became our brother. She became our older sister. And we were just just fine, you know? Like, Did this woman it. have a partner too? Or was she a kind of a single foster parent? She, I, no, she had a... She didn't have a partner at the time. She had a boyfriend, mm -hmm. which we called Uncle John. Yeah. Like he, he lived like down the street, and he also had foster kids. Uh, but they were, they were perfect. Like He would come, uh, and they would take us skiing. They would take us fishing. They would take us to the country. Like, you know, just you got out. great. Dude, yeah. we got lucky, man. We, we, we made it. Like We always wanted to live in a, home, in a house instead of like apartments and things. Mm -hmm. We finally got to live in a house. We had like siblings, you know. And we were just like real kids. We played in the street. We played football. We played baseball. We, we became, you know, we belonged to teams. We went to real schools. I mean, what else you want, you know? So, so we were good. Of course, like, we didn't have those other things of, like, you know, parents and family members and things like that. But you get over that, you know? Well, you kind of, I don't want to say you built your own family, but these other foster kids and this woman they became your family. they did they did i mean we were i'm telling you we were lucky because i mean what are the odds of us like landing in a foster home that has other ethiopians and eritreans and and a black you know just everything that can totally like restore everything you've lost you know it was perfect 
And um, so it was good. And, and, you know, they promoted everything that we liked, like sports. Uh, yeah, were you an active games. kid? Uh, yeah, super active. I couldn't sit. Like, I, I can't play video games. Like, it's it just too much sitting for me. So I, I just hated it. Back then, it was like... So it, this conversation is killing you. No, no, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. We'll probably need to get up soon. But, uh, you know, back then, you know, that was like the kid that I'm telling you about. He yeah. just got Nintendo. Yeah. You know, the original one. Yeah. So, you know, all they wanted to do was just sit and play Super Mario and all these Zelda and stuff, you know? And that just tortured me. I just wanted to be out running and playing football or whatever. And so... But it was great because... Back then, like, we walked to school. We took buses, you know? So you could, you, you could just go outside and go to the park and play and play with other kids. It's not like today where, you know, parents drop their kids off and, you know, it's not safe. Put a screen in front of their face. Yeah, and, none yeah. of that. Like, you know, we had TV time. We watched TV, but, you know, we like Spend to turn it off. most of time outside. And, exactly, yeah. And the neighborhood kids were cool. Like, you can go to so-and-so's house. You know, when we went to school, it was the three of us. We walk and we pick up. Muhammad down the street and we go pick up like some other folks around and by the time we get to school it was like seven eight of us you know it's just like a healthy natural just growing up you know so yeah how long did it take before you were comfortable speaking English and interacting with people outside of your own house man it's, it's funny because I, did, I told you I didn't speak a word of English I mean yeah. I knew like he she boy girl you know those little things like that but within six months I was talking you know yeah. Because as a kid, like, you don't have these... Well, you were immersed you in it, too. Yeah, you had no choice, too. Yeah. It's a matter of survival. So you just repeat whatever people say, and hopefully you'll get it right. And then you just, it's just trial and error. And, and, and as a kid, like, you don't have these hang-ups. You just don't care. You make mistakes. You just keep talking, you know? And, and, and what happened was I was a pretty decent student when I was back in Eritrea, but that trauma shut me down. Like, mm. it just, I just, I couldn't read. For a very long time. It was crazy. Like, I just forgot. Like, I, I didn't speak English already, but I was still like, I can, you know, I can read it and I can write it and I did, you know. But there was a problem with me just like reading. And so I had to get like this, like learning specialist for a very long time to like teach, like they used to come to my house and teach me how to read mm-hmm. all over again. But it wasn't even about like teaching how to read. It was just, it was a block. And later, like, you know, I went to like counseling school and I, and it is a thing. It actually happens when a kid experiences a certain trauma, there's a blockage, you know? And, and one, that's one of those things that happens. is like people just get these blocks, you know? It can be, mine, I know a lot of it was an emotional thing because for a very long time, I didn't feel anything. Like I just was emotionally numb because that was the way I coped yeah. with my trauma. Um, so- Did you not realize it was trauma till you went to counseling school yourself? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. I, you, you don't realize it. You just think like it's a, it's, it's normal. Mm-hmm. It's a part of survival. That's what people do. Just suck it up. Be tough. You know. Like I used to cry a lot when I was a kid, and my brother would be like, "You gotta stop crying. You're embarrassing us." And you got you know. So he made me stop crying. And but but when I stopped crying, that was it. I couldn't cry anymore. Yeah. Like when my dad died, I didn't cry. I could. I didn't feel anything. Yeah. Like, it you just know, went numb. Yeah, it was just numb. So a lot of things happen like that. You know. You, you, I don't. I don't understand the mind enough to say like what causes those things but that definitely i can i can see it now you know there was trauma there and the way i coped was very different from the way my brother coped and uh, i think maybe he had a much healthier way of coping than i did and uh but but i see him now too he's he's you know he's 44 now and he's going through it 
you know? And I've already kind of like worked it, worked Work through it. Maybe there will be another cycle for me in my 50s that I'll go, I'll have another breakdown or something. But it's good though. I like it because we're all working at it. You know, we're, we're working and we're not, we're facing our fears and we're dealing with our traumas. We're not still trying to just put them away and just sweep them under the rug and just kind of leave them there, you know? Well, and I think that goes for all of us in our own ways. Everyone's story is a bit different, but we're all works in progress. Exactly. And, and I think the key words there are, are in progress. Like mm-hmm. you never arrive at this place where like, oh, I'm, I'm completely okay. Like yeah. there's always that, like that, that past is always going to be there and it may rear its, you mm-hmm. know, it may not rear its head, you know, quite as fiercely as it did at another point in your life, but you know, it's not going to, it's not going to go away. It's either. not. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, uh, you have to understand to everybody have, have, their own way of dealing with something, you know, mm-hmm. as my brother and I did. But there's also, like, the pace matters, you know. Like, you, are, some people are slow, some people are fast, you know. And, yeah, I mean... Everyone processes differently. Yeah, so you got to give them that, you mm-hmm. know. I know we want them to just get over it and just, come on, just get over it. Come come be with me, you know. But you can't do that. Yes. And I think that's the bond, that's the thing about running. That's why I started running. It's like, the, the, my, my first race, I felt something. Yeah. You know, I I felt something. I was like, oh my god, this feels this it feels it feels something. You know, like you it hurts, but you can feel something again. You're not numb anymore. And then and then with running, you know how it is. Like you can always run faster, right? Yeah. You can always run harder. So you, forever you're gonna feel something. This is like a hell of a gift. Mm-hmm. And 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 fortunately, like I'm genetically, I have that ability to keep running and running and running to the point where I can just run really fast and hurt for a very long time and sustain that hurt, you know? Because that's what really makes me feel alive. Alive, yeah. So, so it's just like well, a drug. Not, well, and, and in that circumstance, you're not numb anymore. Exactly. And, and that's my way. That's my way. When I'm out there running, when I'm doing like 15, 20 mile runs, that's what I'm working. I'm working on it. That's, my, that's how I work on my problems, you know? Mm-hmm. I get out there, I get to that point. You know, in the beginning, it's all jumbled up. Your thoughts are everywhere. And finally, you get to that point where Find it's clarity. all fun. Then you get into one, and then you start running really fast or whatever. You don't feel the ground anymore. You're floating. You get to that state. That's where you can do some serious processing, you know? That's a whole nother stratosphere there. That's beautiful. And I'm man. sure every runner has been there, you know? And, and, and that's what you try to do, right? You try to hold on. You try to stay in that zone for a very long time. And a lot of people do that in different ways, like musicians do it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they were in there in that zone, kind of, you know, everybody's it's like... flow. Like, yeah, exactly. The flow state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing about running that keeps me coming back for more, you know? So. You mentioned how you were an active kid, couldn't sit still, were always out playing different sports. When did running formally first come into your life? Um, as a standalone formally, thing. yeah, as opposed to just just running to the bank, running, running errands, and exactly, stuff. yeah, yeah, uh, like there was racing or something. Right, racing, yeah. I, I wrestled in high school, you know, um, so wrestling to me was very challenging because I was just so small and weak. I was 108 pounds in high school, and and I just got my ass kicked all the time, like because I would have to move up to the 112 category, mm-hmm. and then there was a good guy in 112, so they moved me up to the 118s. Dude, I just get thrown around everywhere, you know. So I was like, so I thought it was my endurance, you know, because you, when you're getting your ass kicked and people throwing you around that mat for six minutes, you just feel you get tired. Yeah. So I so I start so my brother was a track star at this point, yeah, high school, you know. Everybody knew him, everybody loved him. 
that's the only reason why I never got beat up in high school is because my brother. They'd be like, oh, that's Yonder's little brother, you know? And um, so I was like, ah, let me try to do this thing my brother does, you know? I'm going to go out there and do the races. And I started racing. And the only person that can beat me was my brother. And he was supposed to be this hot shot, you know? But I always beat my brother in everything. When we were kids, like in everything, every sport, I'm better than him. So I was like, huh, okay, so I could be like better than... And then... It didn't even, at that point, it was so funny because it didn't have anything to do with beating my brother, though. Because when I did that race, like I told you, it felt good, you know? It hurt, like, in a way that was just like, oh, wow. It unlocked something. Yeah. And then then I went home and I was laying on the sofa, like, you know, just chilling, relaxing like that. and, And I turned around and my hamstring cramped. And I was screaming, you know, it ever happened to you? Oh, like when yeah. You're, yeah, so I was just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Like, I'm just, this thing's doing something to me, you know? Like, there's so many things happening to my body. And, and then, and that was it. Then ever since, I just got hooked. I kept running. I kept, I mean, it's emotional for me, but I kept running. And, and my time wasn't good. I mean, I ran 508 in the mile, you know? This is junior high, high school? And no, I started running, like, kind of late. I started running as a sophomore. Okay. And, uh... And then, uh, so I ran 508, and and I went to, I went to a, I went to a the Stanford Invitational back in the day. Remember when it was in, uh, at the big stadium? Mm-hmm. And this girl, these there's these, these twins. They they were named uh, Alyssa and Lori Reedy. They actually ended up going to Cal and became teammates with them. That girl ran a she ran a 503. I was like, she was faster than you. I was like, the girl just ran 503. I'm I'm running 508. I was like, oh man. So then, then I just went, and then my next PR was 503, 448, you know. By the time you know it, like a month and a half, two months later, I ran 421. So I, like, it was, I was improving pretty steadily, you know. Yeah. And then, so and then it just kept going, and I became pretty decent at it. What do you think made the difference at that time where you're able to drop from 508 to 503 to 421 in a short period of time? Was it the training? Did you end up just growing more belief? In yourself, did you take more risks? I'd love to just understand that a little well, bit more. Well, you know, it just became, you know, all those random, like, things I used to do, just get up and just go run to the to the, to the 7-Eleven or just go run to the bank or, or when somebody asked, that became more structured and with purpose now. Mm-hmm. It had, like, direction, you know? It was going somewhere. Yeah, I lived, yeah. I, grew, I told you, I grew up in San Francisco, right? There's hills everywhere. So there was this huge hill that you could barely walk up on my street. And I would get up in the middle of the night and do that 10 times until I almost passed out, you know? Sometimes I'll throw up. Sometimes when you're in I'll, high school. Yeah. It gave me a reason to go do these crazy things. There was, like, purpose now. Did you, you just come up with that on your own? 10 times, 10 times uh, that Ramsell Hill. It just, like, to me, that was, like, the workout. It's, like, a real workout, proper, mm-hmm. you know? I'm going to do it, walk down, and do it 10 times. And I... And, very few times I can do it 10 times because I would either throw up or, or just, like, you know, get lightheaded before I finished it. Yeah. But, but in my mind, it was like everything I did from that moment on had purpose. And I was telling them the other day, we ate junk, you know. Uh, we had a person who worked at McDonald's. Every time I go to McDonald's, I'll, I'll get the, the value meal, two Big Macs, two cheeseburgers, supersized fries, all that stuff. And I'm, I told you, I only weigh 108 pounds, but I would devour that yeah. stuff, you know? And completely, like, when running got serious, dude, I haven't had McDonald's since 1994. That's impressive, man. Yeah. Even when you went to the Olympics, you didn't go to McDonald's Hell at the Olympic no. Village. I was, crazy I was shocked is, people were eating McDonald's. Well, so I don't know how much you know about me, but in 2012... 
I coached a guy from Costa Rica mm-hmm. uh, to the Olympics in London. Yeah. And I got to go as part of the Costa Rican coaching staff. And so I spent 18 days in the village with him because the marathon was yeah. at the end of the program. So we're eating in the dining hall every day. And the biggest line is every McDonald's. day is McDonald's. Dude. I mean, they're an Olympic sponsor. It's I was like, this is crazy. I'm telling you, man. I was, yeah, at the Olympics, you know, and I remember this vividly. Uh, Angelo Taylor, he won the 400-meter yeah. hurdles. He wore his gold medal. He came into the dining hall, and he had his tray, and it was McDonald's, you know? And I was like, well, he won the gold medal, so I guess he deserves some McDonald's. <laughs> but, you know, but he probably ate McDonald's, you know, all yeah. the time. And uh, I like that guy a lot, too, Angelo Taylor. I always remember him, but, you know, because he came back eight years later and won it again. Yeah. That year, you know, he won it in lane one. Mm-hmm. And then when he came back, he wanted in lane eight or something. Yeah. Like, ridiculous. You know, yeah. this dude is, like, amazing. The lane the lane one, I remember that. Um, that's, I mean, that's the worst draw in it 400 is. hurdles. It I is, mean, you yeah. Just, the turns are so tight and you're moving so fast. Yeah. But, I mean, that was, that was I think, um, one of the most impressive Olympic victories of Big all time. Big time, yeah. Nigel Taylor was a hell of an athlete. I mean, he could also run, like, a good 800, but, you know, you would never. Yeah. But I, I remember I went to Georgia Tech one time with my good friend who also went to Georgia Tech. I don't know you remember David Krummenacher. Yeah. So we, we were in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We were in Atlanta training, so we went to see his coach. And his coach told us about Angelo Taylor. Like, he was probably, like, the fastest person he's ever, like, seen because they did like some crazy 300 meter time trial or something and he ran so fast it was, it was like 30 lows or something crazy like you know but yeah but he was he was out of the talent like i always i followed his career i like i like i like sprints you know even when i was in high school i knew everybody's prs mm-hmm. in the sprints i watched the women's sprints the men's sprint the jumps throws a hammer like that's just distance running i avoided it I didn't want to know my competition. I didn't want to know people's names. You know, I just was like... Before you showed promise in distance running, mm-hmm. or maybe while you showed promise in distance running, did you want to be a sprinter yourself? Well, my club that I belonged to in, in, in San Francisco, San Francisco Senators, mm-hmm. they didn't have regular uniforms. Everybody was sprinters. My brother, our friend Jerome... And me, we were both, all went to McAteer, same high school. We were the only distance runners. They had some 800 guys. But, you know, 800 guys all want to be quarter milers anyway. Yeah. They don't really want to be 800-meter runners. So all they had was bodysuits. And, and our coach was a sprinter. So we all did, like, sprint work. So we all worked out together. We had a guy who run 46, you know? And he would make us do 400s with him. It's like... You know, we, we'd be running like 54, 52, just dying. And he's just jogging 49s, just kind of like repeats, you know? It's just like, so, so all my whole team was sprinters. So I had that sprinter mentality, you know? So, so I got to interrupt you. So correct me if I'm wrong. That's where the bodysuit exactly. comes from. That's, that's where the, the genesis of it. Yeah, the San Francisco Senators, yeah. Because I, when, I, when I got in touch with you to set up this conversation, you're a few years older than me, but I mean, that's what was really distinct. You yeah. were racing 5,000 meters in a bodysuit. No I one know. else was. Now, like Jakob Ingerbritz does it. I know. And it's like, dude, yeah. you are not an original. Yeah, that was all Belota. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> David started doing it too. That's a cool story. Yeah, the guys at Cal kind of like got into it. And even at the Oregon Track Club, actually, uh, one of the guys was pissed off because I asked for a bodysuit. He's like, I got to make that fucking guy bodysuit nah. so he so he couldn't just make one so he made like six of them okay. and and guess what 
uh, Nick Simmons, Star wearing yeah. it, and then uh, Matt Shear, who just passed away. You know, he wore, he wore it, and some of the other 800 guys also wore it. But that was my bodysuit. Yeah, <laughs> that, it's it's really cool for me to hear that yeah. that origin story and to look back. I mean, to when I was, you know, in in college, really, and I remember watching you compete at the 2004 yeah. U.S. Olympic trials, and again 2008, but 2004, I remember watching that. And thinking like, why is he wearing a bodysuit? I know. And now I know the answer to yeah. that. That's so yeah. cool. Like 20, was, 20, almost 20, 20 years later. Yeah. It's funny because the sprinters noticed too, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I remember I was at an indoor race one time and you remember John Drummond? Yeah. The sprinter and Dennis Mitchell? Yeah. They were like actually at a bar or something. And, and these guys, I watched them growing up. You know, I know them, you know? And they saw me at the bar, and they were like, oh, that's that guy in the bodysuit, you know? And I was just like, what? The sprinters, like, noticed the, the 3,000 meters and noticed that I was wearing a bodysuit? That's crazy, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, like, and it's, it's pretty cool. What was the rest of your progression like in high school? What did you ultimately graduate with in terms of personal bests, and how did you decide to run at Cal? Um, yeah, eventually I, I ran... I didn't run, like, ridiculously fast like the kids are running now, you know? I didn't even break nine minutes. Oh, the kids, now are, the kids yeah. now are silly. Yeah, I didn't. But I was I, I won Arcadia, which was, like... That's a big you, deal. Yeah, so, like, winning always kind of was my thing. It's like, I, I kind of was on a... I knew how to win races, you know? So, and I never, like... Uh, yeah, I didn't run eight anything. I ran 9.04. It was a two-mile. Maybe that's, like, what, a nine-flat... 3,200 3, or whatever. You ran as fast as you needed to, yeah, to win. to get noticed. Yeah. I mean, at that race, after that, like, a lot of things opened up for me, you know? And even the race before that, I, mean, I remember I went from 919 to, like, 913. The guy in front of me was, like, almost 100 meters ahead of me. And I, it was a lap to go. And I caught him at the finish. The whole crowd was just like, who watches a two-mile in high school? People usually take a break, you know? Yeah. Dude, the whole stand, they were just, like, screaming, you Do know? Do you remember what your last lap was? It must have, I always ran under 60. Sub 60. Yeah. And Arcadia, I ran 57, my last lap. And so that was like, you know, it was fast back in the day. Now everybody does. Those kids, it's like running 56s yeah. or whatever. But I always had a pretty good finish, you know? And um, yeah, so so that was like, that. That people like watching that. And, and it makes you, it gets you, you know, noticed, right? And when you can just always kind of like be like, 50, 70 meters behind and, and then just catch everybody and pass them and stuff. You know? I'm, I'm chuckling right now because it reminds me of something our mutual friend of ours, Knox Robinson, told yeah. me in a conversation we had yeah. once. It was about his dad, actually. Yeah. Um, so when he was watching his dad running growing up, he said his dad always used to say, save something for the fans in the stands. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, definitely, I mean, there's that element to it. Like, one of my favorite distance runners uh, is, is Michael Stember. I mean, not because he's one of my friends, you know, but I always, even also in high school. Also speed He did, but after me <laughs> in the 800. But, but I liked him because he, he understood the entertainment element of it, you know? Mm-hmm. He was like, dude, we're ultimately entertainers here, you know? We have to put on a show for the crowd. That's the only reason why they're going to... They're here. You can't be like some boring or race, this Peloton type of distance carnival nonsense, you know? That's not entertainment, you know? Like, there has to be this... Somebody's got to be the rock star there, you know? And he always was willing to be that guy. Of course, he offended a lot of people, or some people found him to be arrogant, whatever. But he's, 
he's, he's, he is what he is. He's an athlete. Look, he's accomplished. He went to the Olympics. He made it, you know. He did, he did great things in the sport. He did memorable things. And I'm telling you, when we were in high school, a lot of sprinters, they don't know distance runners, but they knew who Michael Stember was, you know. They didn't say his name right. I remember our whole team used to call him Michael Stembler. We called him Stembler, you know. But we knew who he was. They'd be like, oh, man, don't let that Stembler get you, man. That guy, you'll bust a 52 on your last lap. Ah, you know, it's like, that's, that's something right there, yeah. you know. Same thing, like Obi Moore. Why do people like Obi Moore? This guy will catch anybody that's ahead of him, you know. He split like a 44 in high school. Amazing athlete, Michael Granville. You know, the same, same kind of era. You know, these guys were like, their records still stand, you know. Like, they did something that will never be like, it, you can always remember them, you know. Mm -hmm. it, they won in style, you know. When they won, they did it in style. It was like, it was beautiful. It was memorable. Like, it, that, the signature move for Stember in high school used to be, like, everybody watched it. With 600 to go, he just took off. You and just you, knew it was and coming, you knew it was coming. Yeah, and that's... you couldn't do anything about it. But he took off, and everybody watched, like, you know, this skinny little blonde guy just smoking everybody, you know. So we need that. We love that. Like, we, we, we love the, uh, what's his name, Morsely, for that reason. Yeah. Uh, Haile, the, the Haile and Palter God duels. Oh, my God. I mean, those are still, yeah. they're the best. I don't even want to say some of the best. They're the, they're they the best. are, yeah. And they happened, I mean, that... I mean, that 96 Olympic... That happened in Atlanta, years. too? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's yeah. crazy. It's amazing, yeah. So, you know, you always kind of... I think, I think every athlete... I mean, I know me, I'd rather be that kind of athlete than the guy who just, like, won a bunch of races and got a bunch of titles and whatever without style, you know? Like, there's... You got to leave something, like Knox's dad said, you know, for the fans, and right? For the fans. Yeah. Well, that's what it's about. I mean, I remember reading this article. I think it got posted to this site, Athlete Biz. Mm -hmm. um, but it was by, I can't remember if it was by Willie Banks or if they just quoted Willie Banks mm -hmm. in there. And and he said that. He's like, look, I'm in the entertainment business. Yeah. Um, and he's like, I got to put, he's like a meat promoter in Europe told me. He's like, he's like, what's your job? Put butts in the seats. Yeah, you exactly. Know? And, that, yeah. and that's, that's, what it's, that's what it's about. And I feel like, not to go off on too much of a tangent, in some ways the sports kind of get into that or getting yeah, yeah. getting that aspect of it. And, you know, we're seeing some more interesting personalities yeah, yeah. and interesting things yeah, happening. Yeah. But I think there's still a lot of athletes who are trying to be professional who are just stuck on like, no, I I got to I gotta hit this time. Yeah. You know, or I got to qualify for this meeting. It's like, yeah, you got to do that to some degree. Yeah, but yeah. you also got to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a time and place for all that. I mean, there's a time and place for those Peloton type of races. You know, yeah. we need those. Because there's no way you can run these standards these that they standards, have now. They're yeah. so ridiculous now. You got to do them in that kind of way, you know. But championships should be championship, man. Yeah. You know, like I think the last uh, outdoor championship I, I ran, uh, Fam, you remember Fam and Yeti? Yeah. He would not listen to me. I was like, dude, let's just switch off two laps. We can run 62s, 62s, and just trade off. We'll drop these guys. He was like, nah, man, you know, I'm just doing my own thing. But I, I mean, you know, don't worry about it. I was like, dude, I'm telling you, these guys, they're going to respond to everything we do if we do it individually. If we do it together, and we constantly run 62s, they're not going to touch. This guy, he go, the gun goes off, he goes and runs 62s by himself, you know? I mean, we went out fast. He took us through like, you know, like 408 or whatever. It was nice pace. I remember that. Yeah, but then we just were like... And we just took it over for him and just pushed him to the side yeah. afterwards. You know, it was nothing. And then at the end of it all, and then I, I was left alone. And then I kind of took some part of it. And then those three guys just 
work me, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we both lost. But if we work together, you know? And, and I, I understand he wanted to be that guy, you know? He wanted to be like, I'm going to do it my way. And I'm, but I'm like, dude, he st- we could still have a nice, you know, because towards the end, I'm, I'm, I'm competitive, every yeah. man for himself. But at least let's kind of like, at least position ourselves for the win right. and for something, you know? But... Yeah, so sometimes you can get carried away with that creative yeah. shit too, you know. <laughs> you gotta be realistic. Yeah. How'd you end up at Cal? Oh, um, actually, you know, Gags was the first person to recruit me. Yeah, you mentioned actually, that before it was we got on the Stanford. It was Andy Gerard, like mm-hmm. from Stanford, when Lenana came. Mm-hmm. So, dude, these guys were like super consistent and loyal. They like talked to me every week. They really wanted me to get to Stanford and Georgetown. It's like mid-1990s, right? 96 was yeah. my senior year. So, uh, but I came up short, man, because, you know, I told you, I had come to America about five years or so before that, so I was like six years maybe. My English was, you know, I did really bad on the SATs and stuff. My grades were good because I was a decent student by then, but just the SAT scores, man, I just, I had this block. To this day, I'm sure I probably will score the same if you gave it to me today because I've taken, like, some GRE. I suck at these things, you know? Oh, me too. I'm oh terrible God, at the I'm standardized so tests. I'm awful so I them. struggled. So Stanford was like, dude, we tried everything. We can't get you in, but let us know if we can help. Then Georgetown, same thing. I did my interview and everything. Gags was like, man, this last chance you had. I had to take my SAT the day of the state meet in high school. That morning, I took the SAT straight to the track after the test, you know? Like, so that's how badly I took the SAT like 12 times my senior year. That's how much of like a mental block I had on that test, you know? And after the third time, of course, it became a real challenge because I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna fail and I never did good. So anyway, so then they gave up on me and then it was so crazy because UCLA even, you know, Bob Larson at the time, he saw me actually at the Arcadia meet when I won, and I walked up to him, and he was like, hey, Coach Bob Larson. And I was like, oh, what's up? I heard about you. He was like, look. And I was like, and he shows me on his stopwatch. He was like, you ran a 57-1, your last lap. And I was like, oh, yes, this guy, I think I got this one. You know, I'm going to go there and be with Meb, you know? No. It, so no other school. And then actually, Bob Larson was straight up. He was like, look, we got Michael Stember, we got Michael Granville, and there was some other, like, I, you know, they had too many high-profile athletes coming there. Michael Stember actually ended up going to Stanford, but he had no money for me, basically. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter anyway because I just didn't get the SAT scores. And you needed a scholarship to go to college. May, yeah, but, but I mean, I, wasn't, I told you I was in a foster home, so I qualified for pretty much all the for financial aid, aid yeah. which a lot of schools like because then they don't have to give you money. They can just give you a little bit of money on top of it. So, um, So I was... Kids like me are, like, really desirable for schools like that. You know, mm-hmm. they sustain your program for you because they qualify for everything. And so the, all you got to do is just give them a little bit of something on top, mm-hmm. and, and then you can disperse the rest of the money to, to the other got athletes. It. And um, so, dude, like, my way late in, like, April or something, it's just, like, way too late, the letter from Cal comes, you know, from the coach. And we've been waiting for this letter because Cal to us is special because it's sacred, you know? It's like, here, it's local, right here. we know mm-hmm. it. And like, no letter, no attention, nothing. We didn't get anything from Cal. Until a month before you graduated. Dude, man, it was so late. Then my high school coach, he brings, he runs to my, like, e- economics class or something. And he brings the letter. He's like, Blota, we got the letter. We got the letter in the middle of class and shit, you know? And a bunch of these kids who were, like, really, like, 
you know, smart kids. They were so mad because was, I wasn't, like, the best in the class or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that was it. I was like, oh, shit, I'm cows. So then I called the coach back. He was like, come up for a recruiting trip, like a unofficial, because I didn't have, you know, the scores. Who's the coach at the time? Was it Tony? Yeah, Tony. Sandoval? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, that was it. Tony and I just bonded from then, you know. I was pretty young when I met him, too. So I knew him since I was, like, was 16, I guess now. Mm-hmm. Was, yeah, and so... Then he was like, look, if you get the scores, fine. If you don't, we got this one last chance. He said, go to City College, but don't take full courses. Just take a couple of classes and take the SAT again one more time. And just, you know, just put everything aside and just focus on that. Don't focus on that. And I took a break from the test and took my time. Sure enough, like he said, I took it. I got the scores. And then he was like, cool, I'll get you in the spring. And he got me in the spring through those blue chip things, Mm -hmm. you know. Like, so I was, like, basically a blue-chip athlete. I came in the spring. That was the only school that b- believed in me, basically, and, and get, took the time or the effort to kind of uh, bring me on. That's why I'm always, like, Tony and I, have, man, we've had our differences. We've gotten into it, so many. But he's, like, he's my dad, you know? Like, yeah. we'll oh, forever be family, and I'll forever be, like, grateful to him. Of course, it's, it's his job and all that. You can say all that, but he didn't really have to do all that, you know? Mm-hmm. He didn't, but he did, you know? Sounds like Cal was going to be the best fit for you it just took time for the pieces to fall into place in hindsight yeah you know you always think like well if i went to stanford yeah man if i had gone to georgetown but you know look about three and a half years later like i told you i did end up being coached by gags mm-hmm. right and lenana was also there and he was also the coach so i did get that opportunity and i saw how they coached i would have broke i wouldn't have survived yeah gag wouldn't have been taking any of my shit for one thing because i was I was, I was, I ran like 15 miles a week when I was in college, you know. Tony, like, entertained it for a bit. You know, he would say, okay, it's all right. You know, you can go lift weights and then go play basketball for a few hours. But, you know, eventually we got to get you. You know, he, he worked with me. He let me grow up slowly. And I was, I was very young. Like I told you, I was 17. And I was little. I was very small. Like, I developed very late. Mm-hmm. So, so I would have gotten stress fracture after stress fracture, mentally discouraged and, and probably quit if I had gone to Georgetown or Stanford. So you're right. I think Cal was probably the best place for me to grow up. Well, think about not just those two schools, but they are powerhouse Division One schools with exactly. established programs and very deep rosters. And this isn't a knock on you know Gags or Vin as, mm-hmm. as coaches. They're both tremendous coaches in, mm-hmm. in their own right. But when you have a program like that, it is hard to work with kids individually because you have so many under your wing yeah. and there's a lot of pressure for the teams to be good exactly. as, as well. And, you know, throwing someone like you who was still developing, you know, physically and also who's training like 50 miles a mm-hmm. week is not, I mean, that's not a lot of running by, by anyone's standard. 50, you did know. you say 50? Did you say, no, 15. 15, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's not even running. Like, yeah, that's yeah, what I'm saying. Like, like 15 miles yeah. a week is, is not a lot of miles by yeah. anyone's standards. And you go to a D1 program like that, I mean, as a freshman, you're minimum doing like 60. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and that is and that is going to, you know, break most kids. So it sounds like by going to Cal, you just had this opportunity to kind of move along at your own pace and really develop I as did. an athlete. I did. I, man, aside from, of course, Tony, you know, was the coach that he was, and he understood me in ways that I think most other coaches w- wouldn't have been able to understand. Uh but aside, man, Peter Gilmore, you know, uh, my other teammates like Chris Coffey, the one I just told you passed away, John Collin, like Richie, Magda, 
they were a big part of that. Yeah. You know, these guys, like, made me feel safe, uh, kept it honest with me when I was bullshitting, you know? Like, they just be like, no, no, you can't do it like that. You got to do it like this. You got to wear these shorts. You got to dish those Chicago Bulls shorts, you know? Like, stuff like that, yeah, you know? Yeah. Just just keeping me honest and being on time. Like, big brothers, you know? Yeah. And, well, and big sisters. They became your family. Yeah. Like, to this day, you know, Magda, she, she will bring me down. If I'm saying some nonsense, she'll be like, <laughs> stop it, stop it. She's good for that. Yeah, like, she would check me. You know, she's just got that, like, that team mom kind of thing she, over me, you know? Well, she she has that mom mentality. I she mean, does. she is a mother herself. She's Dude. She has a young son, but she does have that just presence about her, right? She does. She does. You know, it's like I would say no to a lot of people, and then when she comes and says, do it, I'd be like, okay. You know, like she kind of just breaks you down, and just like because she gives so much too, you know? Mm-hmm. And she's always been there for me in so many different ways. She's nurturing. She's caring. She goes there with you, and she she proves it. You see, like she can fucking run, you know? She can do it. So Still can do when it. When she says do it, you do it, you know? Yeah. Same thing with Richie. Same thing with Peter. Like these guys, just like, especially, especially Peter, because he's he's one year older than me, and he was over the breaks when Tony would you know would go on a summer break, whatever. Peter, you know, he he made us do all these workouts, tempo runs. The first time I heard of a tempo run was Peter. You know, threshold work. We did them together over the summer. You know, we build nice base, and he'll come up with some different philosophy that he he got from Kenya or or from from. Uh, I remember, yeah. yeah, he used to get. I remember he used to uh, from Tour de France, the bike thing. I remember one time he was like, I'm, "We're gonna do what the cyclists do," kind of thing. So we would try something new, and I don't know. He's just he's just always been that kind of like stable. It's kind of funny because Peter Peter means rock, right? Mm-hmm. He's like his name's fucking you know. Fits him. That's what he is. He's a rock, yeah. you know? He's just solid. He's always there. The same guy. Consistent, you know? Yeah. I got to get Peter on the podcast. No, he's right I mean, over he here in Alameda. I yeah, ran yeah. into him, you know, just a couple months back. And, I mean, I, from yeah. what I know of his story, it's it's pretty incredible. But hearing you describe your mm-hmm. relationship with him makes me want to sit down with him even more. During your time at Cal, 2000, you ran in the Olympics for Eritrea. Yeah. Talk to me about that whole process uh how that came to be i mean i tried to you know at that point of course i was pretty proud like at that point i did eritrean identity thing was pretty strong yeah pretty much with all of us because i mean we've only been a country i guess for like what seven years at that point Mm -hmm. and um and we've never been to the olympics before and and so everybody was kind of trying to do their own part you know like our parents did their piece you kind of, everybody wants to contribute. Some people, some of my friends were going back there and doing service there, you know. And, and that, me, you know, I was still a student. I don't know what to do, but that was my piece. I was like, you know, the least I can do is try to represent my country at the, at the highest level. And this was the first time they were ever going to be participating in the Olympics. Yeah, so I was so wondering, was, did, they even, did they even have like an Olympic committee or anything? Dude, they, well, yeah, they formed it that yeah. year, you know. Uh, and so they were like a couple of guys, you know, these older dudes that were like former athletes. Um, and then they just did it and... And they actually kind of, I think they participated in the world championship that was in Athens or something the okay. year before that, just to kind of like, that was like the, yep. the, the intro. And then, uh, then yeah, that was, so that was the first team. So I, I couldn't pass that up. And my family was with it. You know, they supported it. They were like, you know, if that's up to you, if that's a sacrifice you want to make. Because, I mean, 
the Olympic team, the American team was pretty tough to make, but I was there. I made the final at the trials, you know? In, in 2000, were you a U.S. citizen? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was a U.S. citizen. I've been okay. here since 89. So yeah, I didn't I'm, know when you got your citizenship, yeah, though. I, I, for some reason, I thought it was 2002 when you got no, your citizenship. No, no, I got, yeah, I, that's when I, I uh, got my release <gasps> from, I from marriage and then started competing for you the U.S. compete for the yeah, U.S. Yeah. I got it. Okay. Yeah, because... That makes sense. I, I was like, all right, that's enough. I, had, I paid my dues. Because <laughs> they were so disorganized and there was corruption. Sure. Was, was such a high level there. Uh, so then my fam, some of my family were like, you got to, if you want to do something. And also my Nike contract was contingent upon me becoming a U.S. athlete. So I had to ditch the whole Eritrean thing. Yeah, making, yeah. making a U.S. Olympic team. Yeah, think. exactly. Yeah. So I had to be like, so I got a release from them. Luckily, they didn't want to give it to me. I had to go all the way up to the, like the minister of education, who's like basically right under the president, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know. And then he gave me my release, and and then I started competing for the U.S. I mean, but I went to Eritrea every year to train, you know. Like I'm committed to to both. They're both my home. I'm yeah. San Francisco kid, in, and from Asmara too, you know. It's all the same to me. It's just a global community, you know. Yeah, but well, uh, you've never forgotten your roots. Nah, you can't, you know. It always that's what grounds you, you know, that's what keeps you moving in a straight line, just knowing where where you where you come from and who who you are, you know. Like I told you earlier, a lot a lot of black folks in the world don't have that privilege. Yeah. Of having to know where they come from. Like I can go to my dad's village, I can talk to relatives. As soon as you go to your dad you can see them, you can see their eyes. Like the other you know how everybody wears masks now? Mm-hmm. I was over there recently and there was a wedding family wedding all the people from the village came so they came to say hi to us and you know and they didn't they didn't recognize me that it was me but they knew i was a family member and then when i took off my mask they were like what the hell i thought you didn't know you were son of so-and-so blah blah but we knew you were one of us they could just tell they could you just know tell by yeah looking at you. And, I, and that's the same that's thing wild. for me you know yeah. like it's just something about seeing people that that are your family you get all like you just tribal know. or whatever you just yeah. know you know You'd be like, wow, that's one of us. That's like, so it's cool. so weird. And that's and listen, I think it does something to to the to the soul or to the something, but it does change you. You know, when you can when you connect with your own people, not just like not racially or whatever, but your own the root. You know, mm-hmm. where my dad was actually born, my grandfather's, all of them. You know, yeah. you draw you draw energy from that. You know, yeah. it's just crazy. That's beautiful. Yeah. Did you? walk in the opening ceremony in 2000 yeah what was that like for you uh the opening was was interesting because that's where they recognize each individual yeah and i mean and you know there was egypt with us and then there was ethiopia you know and at that time we were at war with ethiopia and the ethiopian athletes were fucking beautiful man they were wearing their traditional stuff all white Mm -hmm. you know all the women wearing the the, the the long like robe and the men wearing this white thing that we all we all wear and you know we're the same people mostly yeah. right you know and we were wearing a suit and a tie you know and I was just not like the tra- not the traditional like, yeah that's not right yeah. you know because to me like that just shows like we're a former Italian colony you know mm-hmm. what are we paying tribute to Italians or something what is this you know like I want I came here to the Olympics to represent Eritrea my, people. my yeah. people and I'm wearing a suit and a tie what is that you know and I'm like next to the Ethiopian athlete just jealous I've never been jealous I'm not a jealous person but I was jealous in that moment in that moment and then you know the formality happens you go around the track whatever they introduce you and shit like that and then then just free, everybody just 
moves around. And of course, naturally, we went, you know, Haile was right there, Dorartu was there, all these other Ethiopian athletes. So we're taking pictures and stuff with them. I have the pictures and stuff, you know. And you're just like, still, you know. What did you and, use at the time? Were they like little Kodak cameras? Oh, and at the it, wasn't, close, it wasn't cell phones. No, they gave us cameras. Okay. They, actually, Kodak, they gave these little cam- disposable ones. Yeah, the little So everybody had film. one, so everybody was taking pictures of each other. And, um, and the only thing that I had that was kind of, that was my way of keeping it real to my culture. I had braids. I had cornrows. I had cornrows and I had, like, you know, earrings. And, you know, the cornrows and the earrings are, that's what kings... Would, would do like back in the day the emperors they braided their hair oh. you know like you know all the stuff that you see in hip hop world that's what that's where it comes from it, I mean I don't know if it comes from there but that's what our emperors of the past that's what they do they braid like when you get to a certain status you wear your hair long and they have earrings like my grandfather had like you know earrings and stuff that's so, that's yeah. so cool so I was like at least I got to do that you know even though I was wearing a suit and tie so the picture I, I have a picture with Haile and Dartu and some other Ethiopian athletes they're wearing the, the clothing but at least I got my hairdo you know yeah, so from, I the, from the neck up you were, you yeah. were right the closing ceremony was pretty cool because I got I was the flag bearer for that because I was the youngest so they let me carry the the flag you know that you usually let the youngest person carry the closing ceremony flag because that's the future you, you were know? what like 20 21 at the time yeah i think i was 22 21 yeah 21 i had to be because yeah because I, I remember i had to get my cousin to buy me alcohol <laughs> from there i think i couldn't buy alcohol myself <laughs> like yeah um toward the end of your collegiate career at cal did you know you wanted to pursue professional running or did you have other ambitions at the time Man, you know, the thing was, I was so broke at Cal, you know? I had three jobs, always working, and just every semester I had to move because I just had no money. And then even the year that I went to the Olympics, when I went back, I had like negative $16 in my account. So I was just like, you got to do something, man, you know? And so when I was in the, at the Olympic Village, I called my college coach, you know, Irv, hunt like i told you i said Irv, man, what do I, what do i do like what do you think should i come back for another semester i mean or is there like some nike folks out here you think i should talk to you know she still had some eligibility yeah and he was just like hey you know go talk to this guy at the nike you know lounge and just see. oh at the olympics yeah yeah and he told me to go talk to him and i did and you know back then he was like the rep guy he was you know john capriotti like he's he was like the big time kind of like he ran the whole running field. yeah exactly so i met with him he was so nice to me you know he even met with me and he was a runner at cal poly you know he was a steeplechaser so he was just like man i understand what you're going through i know how it is but you know you got to focus on just going back and winning a title you got to win a title. That's what matters. Times don't mean anything. Just go win some titles. And I was like, okay. I'll, and he was like, then, then what? He was like, then, then we'll talk. And I was like, okay. So I went back. I took six months off. I went back to Eritrea and just trained my ass off. I mm-hmm. took a semester off. I just canceled and withdrew or whatever. And then went back. Dude, I was determined. I was like, I'm going to do whatever he says. I'm going to win that title. I came back and, and did one more uh, track season. I didn't use the cross-country stuff. But that track season went well. You know, I won Pac-10s. Came up short in NCs. My arch nemesis, Jonathan Riley, always sneak up on. You know, we were always like one, two, one, two. That was not, the not one to, where he was not one. Not to interrupt, did you guys end up becoming teammates at yeah. Farm Team a couple yeah. years later? Okay. Yeah, no, we're, we're friends to this day. I actually saw him at the trials 
when I went up, you okay. know, this year. What, yeah, I love that guy. He's like my brother. Yeah. And um, but he got you that day. In oh, he got me that day. But you know, we always go back and forth. We used to have this this bet. It was like twenty dollars every time. It's like <laughs> we used to go back and forth. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it was. We made like you know we were fun. We all we just we were roommates a lot. It was crazy. Yeah. I don't know, but when we went to these, like, you know, even world events, somehow they would always make me roommates with a Stanford guy, you know? It was either Jonathan or Riley or Michael or somebody, you know? Sometimes I got... Trying to keep me. the peace between the I, two I know, schools. I'm like, what are you guys trying to do? <laughs> trying to get me killed. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, so then, then that senior year was, was worked out well. I got some titles. I ran decently fast enough where, you know, the, I was able to get, like, a decent... Well, it was okay, Nike contract. Just something to kind of get me to leave because I was I was helping the Cal program by leaving too because I was freeing up some money. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you that program. You know, we we don't have a whole lot. We're poor over there. So, so I said, hey man, look, they're willing to pay my tuition and my books. You know, but I'll still finish. I'll get my degree, so you guys don't miss a. You know, they miss like you get you lose yeah. points when an athlete leaves. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'll make sure I'll finish, but then you don't have to pay me. And I'll still be here. I'll do my thesis or whatever is left, but I got to go. And he was like, for sure, I understand. So, they, you know, it was cool. We just ended on good terms. I mean, to this day, man, I go to Cal. I'm like, I'm welcome. I didn't burn any bridges. Yeah. I ended up actually going back to grad school there. So it's my home, you know. And because, and, 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 you know, they, they, it was, I love that place. Of course, it's under, I don't know, it doesn't really deliver as much as, like the Stanford or, or a lot of other schools. I think it's do. underappreciated yeah, in a lot of ways. Cal is? Yeah. It Compared is, to some of the other schools. I mean, it has a lot to offer. It's a big school, you know. It's huge. It's 30,000 people versus like Stanford has 10,000 total. I mean, right. it's like 6,000 undergrad, 25,000 undergrad at Cal. It's a big school. It's a public school. I mean, you know, there's so much. I don't know. I think small schools, there's a lot of good them because they focus more on just quality they pay attention to their students they don't let you flunk out you know right they'll call home at cal i mean they try to flunk you you know that's their like their objective is to make sure you to weed people out or whatever yeah. you know so different they're playing different i mean and one is like a research school so i don't know it's different you know had different priorities or whatever mm-hmm. and athletics when you look at athletics i mean like how, you know, it has its own budget, you know. It doesn't take much money from the overall thing. But they always kind of try to make it look like, oh, the athletic department is a drain on the academics. And it's, it's not. It does its own thing, you know. It raises its own money. But for Stanford, they don't care. They got a huge endowment. You think they're worried about money like that? They got the, one of the largest endowments, right? Like next to Harvard or something like that, you know. That's not an issue over there. Mm-hmm. They can focus on taking care of their athletes or their students or their staff or whatever, you know? Early on in your professional career, how driven were you to become one of the best distance runners in this country, the U.S., knowing that you were eventually going to try and compete for the U.S.? I mean, yeah, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to, but when I was in high school, I saw, um, I saw Bob Kennedy ran 1258. Yeah. And that's it. I used to have a picture of Bob Kennedy with that 1258, like all the time. My brother had a picture of Hisham El-Garouj running that 26, 
to you know that uh 320 323 or no, 326 flat yeah and he's like leaning he, he like kneels down afterwards and he's like uh, doing a I still have the newspaper clipping when yeah. Garouge ran the still standing one mile world record in Rome, 343. I still have the newspaper clipping from Yeah, that 340 day. the mile. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was impressive too. I think Noah was like in both those races, huh? He was. Yeah, yeah that's kind of crazy. Noah Nien. Yeah. <laughs> he paced both those races and then he beats him. And yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, so that was my thing. It was like all I can think about was just Bob Kennedy, man, Bob Kennedy. 1258, 1258. I mean, that used to be my password for everything, 1258. My, my ATM, even like it doesn't work now, but you know, it's like 1258. I just had that number, you know, in my head, 1258. And, I, and again, it was one of those things like if I run 1258, everything will make sense, you know. So, so Bob Kennedy was just kind of like the focus all the time. And yeah, so that, I, I really wanted to be good. I really believed I can break 13 minutes. That was like my goal. And everything I did, I mean... It was geared towards that, and I had some setbacks and things that kind of, but still, I felt like I was ready to run under 13 minutes at one point, and right after I ran 13.15, which I almost fell flat on my face, so I should have probably run like 13.08 that day, because I told you, I never run under 60 my last lap, and I went through with a lap to go at 12.08, so I would have run, you know, I, I don't have too many races that I run under 60. Yeah. But where, that, you, where you don't run under 60. I, yeah. yeah. I always run under 60 my last lap, no matter what. Because it's just natural for me to do it, you know. So I went through 12.58, so I would have run, you know, thir- I mean 13.08, you know. Yeah. 12.08, I'm sorry. Yeah, had you run a 60 Yeah, flat. exactly, yeah. 60 flat. But some, some drama happened on the other side where Zelensky, like, tripped these guys. He fell. They fell. He almost fell. And I, you know, it's just like some crazy. So we all, like, lost. We lost. Mm-hmm. We all lost at least five seconds or so. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the year after that, I was ready to go. And I was entered in that same race. And I was going to, you know, I felt like that day was my day. And the night before, they pulled me out of the race. The meat directors did. Yeah, the meat, did. the meat directors did, yeah. What and so we this? woke up in the morning, and I wasn't even on the list anymore. That same race, the... That Zolder race in Belgium was okay. called uh, Houston. Yep. Yeah, it used to be like Hangelo or something back in the day, but they right. moved it to Houston. So yeah, so that that race and and I remember this one guy that I used to always run with. And I used to always beat him. He ran thirteen oh four that day. So I know, you know. You were there. Yeah, I know. He's my friend. I know him. And we always, and even when we raced, even that time, I beat him, like, in the 3K. Then he went and ran 13.04. So I know if I had done what I do, I would have broken 13 minutes that day, you know. Does that sort of stuff happen over in Europe often where so much, man. just pull people off so the much. start list? So, yeah, it's like, you know, they're sneaky that way. Like, because, you know, especially because there's a time difference and stuff. By the time your manager finds out, the meet already happened because there's, you know, they're in, still in the U.S. or something. Right, right. That's why a lot of managers they don't mess around they go to the races yeah. they make sure they're in the hotel they make sure their athletes get to the line because these meet directors will pull that stuff they yeah. will pull your athletes out just to put one of theirs in or whatever you know so but I mean you try to make up for it I remember uh, Mark Wetmore you know he, uh, the agent global he, yeah yeah global he was cool like he found he like he's not even my manager but he got me into London you know three days later but by then it's all like Every, you know, everything's so precise for the 5K. Everything's precise, but then oh, also you, emotionally you're like, okay, yeah, this is my shot. And I got then, up for it, you know. Yeah. I did everything, like, for that moment. Then and the now air gets let out of the balloon and yeah. it's hard to blow and it back up again. And then you got to travel to London, which is not that far, but still there's like three more days. It throws everything off. And then it was horrible conditions, windy and all. You know, it's not the conditions of that 
day. I didn't even, I think I ran like 1330 or something, whatever. It was all, it was a horrible race. Nobody ran fast. Yeah. So, you know, opportunities like that kind of might have, you know, I feel like those are the things that you, you think about sometimes when you wake up. Yeah. Or even another one, you know, Gags always, he, he watched that video like way more than I have. I guess I can't watch it. It's too painful for me. But is at the Olympic, uh, Olympic trials in 2008. Where again, our friend, when nice, finished nice friend Selinski, you know, he like kind of dies. So I bump into him yeah. and then I jump out and I almost take Taking Camp down with me. And then we both stumble. And by that time, Lagat and, and Ian Dobson had run away. They've gone by. And, right. then, and then me and Taking Camp go and catch him. We pass, I pass Selinski and then Taking Camp passes Ian, but then I can't catch Ian. I get fourth, you know? And I mean that race was I was there. I think the only person that could have beat me there is Lagat, because I mean I was it was my home track, you know. I was in Eugene. I was training. I was living there. I mean I had I had it. I I know, you know, like and of course that little trip up, and you you know in hindsight like you're just always like making trying to make things work for you and all, but it's one of those things that just always give me nightmares, you know. It's like. Yeah, it, it, those, that's another opportunity right there. That was, you know, in 2004, I made the team and didn't, they didn't take me. So right? I was going to ask you, was that experience in 2008 doubly painful? Because in 2004, exactly. you finished third, didn't have the standard, A standard, and couldn't go to the Olympics. Dude, man, I mean, I'm telling you, it's like, you know, a lot of 2004, you know, that was traumatic for me, right? Because I had just broken my foot. My dad dies, then I break my foot, then I come back from that, right? I come back from breaking my foot and still competing at a good level. Tim Bro, same thing happened to him. He broke his, his, mm-hmm. his back or he had an injury in his back or something. Matt Lane, same thing. He, he had knee surgery. So all of us, you know, we dealt with this injury the year before and we managed to come back and still make the trials. And we were like, we got this, you know? And we were the top four guys too. And Jonathan was right there. He, yep. so, so, you know, and I made it, man. I made it. I did everything I was supposed to do. And they still were like, you're not going, you know? And I was like, okay. So, I'm, so everything comes back, right? Dad, death, broken foot, all that shit. Yep. And then 2000, then my mom gets breast cancer on top of that. So, you know, it's just like, fuck, what the fuck? What's going on here? The world's like, you know? So it is another thing to manage. So then two years, three years later, everything's working out. We're moving, you know, me, me and Gags are like back together, working. Everything's positive, doing well. And we got this. 2008 was going to make it all right. I put all everything into it. I was broke as hell. Credit card debt like twenty-seven thousand dollars. All that. You I mean, nothing. This. I lost my sponsorship already. You know. So Nike was just basically giving me like eight hundred bucks a month or something, just a stipend. You know. And I I now run thirteen fifteen, and they were fucking had me on a stipend. You know. Like they were just like I was like I'm some kind of like washed up bomb like trying hand asking for handouts or something. I'm like, dude, I've proven myself. Like I can do this, you know? But Gag believed in me, you know? Gag used to give me money from his own pocket. His own money. You know? I'd be like, Gag, I don't have money. I don't have food. I don't have gas. Five hundred bucks. He's incredible like that. You know? Yeah. So so that was it. That was we put it all on the line and that happened, you know? And that was gonna make it right. And it didn't. Yeah, you needed that result. I needed that raise. Yeah, that need that was gonna make it right, and it didn't. And then on top of that, Lagat was like, "Oh, I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna do the the 5K. You're good. Don't worry about it. You you got the 5K." So I'm like, "Cool." So I uh, so I go uh, get signed up for the team, try on the uniform, take pictures and shit. Oh. <laughs> you know? 
I'm sorry. My friends are like, my friends are calling me from, uh, what, what was it? It was China, right? They're like, hey, uh, we see you on the list, but where are you? We can't find you. And I'm just like, ah, I don't know, man. I'm still waiting on the call, you know? So I'm just in Europe waiting around, racing and doing shit, just trying to be like waiting for that phone call. Like, yo, okay, get, get your ticket and come over here. And then the thing you know is the guy's like, oh, I'm going to do both. Do both, yeah. I remember like, why the fuck are you going to do both? Like, come on, man, you know? So then that was it. My dream's gone. So I just went and ran the marathon, you know, in New York. It was fun. I had a little bit of fitness left. So oh, I, like 216, that yeah. debut? Yeah, it was, too, it was rough, but I did it. I mean, I just had to finish, you know? Like, that was the whole point was just get it done, get it in. Were you excited to move up in distance at that point? I mean, I took, I didn't want to. You know, David Monte, you know, he used to put on that race back in the day. And I, and uh, he actually was like, dude, you love this thing. Just come and try it. So I went and tried it out. I, he said, just run 25K with the leaders and just check it out. Dude, I fell in love with it. I mean, I was like, whoa, this is racing. Because we were running in the streets. And, you know, and I was in the lead the whole time because I was with the rabbits. And, and actually some of the rabbits died, so I just took over, you know. So, and we were just cruising through New York, and it was just crowd the whole time. There were just people. Yeah, there's just, nothing like it. Oh, my God. I was like. I ran New York yeah. in 19 for the first time. And I was oh, yeah? like, man, Dude, I, I've run a lot of marathons. There's nothing like that's this. That's an amazing event. And that aspect of it. And just being around fucking legends. I was like, you know, there's, uh, like everybody was there, like. My heroes, you know, like in Palter Gott, uh, Ramallah, you know, Martin Lell, like, and uh, and there was some Moroccan guys. That, uh, well, Abdurrahman, I, I know uh, Broom Dunny. He's like he's he's just training buddy, whatever. But but it, good guys, you know, like Abdi, Meb, Ryan Hall, all those guys, just classy dudes, fun, and you're having fun. I mean, we're walking up to the starting line, and these guys are cracking jokes and hugging each other and it's talking. It's different than the and, track. Oh, big time. Yeah. It's just, it's just fun times. And even they give you tips on what to do, like how to drink and what to take and how to, you know. These old school, like, legends, you know. So I was like, I, I, I think this is it. This is, this is a great thing. I don't know if genetically I'm made for this, you know, because the training is just doesn't, I can't do it. Uh, Have you I, always I, been pretty injury prone as an athlete or...? Certain periods of your life? Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever really had it. And, you know, the only time I've gotten injured is with the marathon stuff. Like I, I had a, like I told you earlier with that race, you know, because I felt my foot. Mm-hmm. And usually my calf would just explode. It would just, like, swell up. So that, I think the, the high mileage stuff kind of does wear me down. Yeah. But, um, and I'm soft, man. Everybody used to say this. Like, I don't run on the road. Dude, I find like every patch of grass I can find around the lake. Ur- urban trail running. Dude, I'm I'm like strictly soft surface. I have the record at Cal on the infield. I'm sure I run on that infield. I've run up to like an hour and a half on that infield. Just on the grass. Yeah, in Flagstaff, you know those uh, the Cardinal uh, practice fields. Uh huh. That's where I do all my recovery runs. I'm running like 15 miles just on the grass doing circles. So. You know, for the marathon, you got to get hard. You got to get on the pavement, yeah. You got to get, yeah. And I'm, I guess, I think that's that. why I break down, you know. That's my weakness. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, again, and, but that's why I'm always injury-free. You are still running and competing in races today. I mean, you're 43 years old. I mean, you're, you're not a professional yeah. athlete anymore. Did you ever officially retire from the sport, or did you just kind of, like, evolve out of the professional side of it where that was your main avenue for making a living uh 
Yeah, basically the only reason why I stopped was because I ran out of money. And then, and then of course, a lot of people out here try to help me like by giving me jobs or whatever. But working, it just doesn't go along with running. You know, I still was making like the Olympic trials or whatever while I was working, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just would go to the national, I'll be exhausted, you know, I just can't run. I can't, there was no way I was going to make teams or, or do anything wor- worthwhile, you know, working and running. So, because I was spoiled, I always had, the, you know, the privilege of just training and sleeping and getting massages and doing nothing else but running. So, I didn't adapt very well to that other kind of life form, you know, like a lifestyle of just working and running. Mm-hmm. And I just knew, like, I would never be as competitive as I feel like I could be. So, I just, yeah, I just basically stopped after, I think it was the 2012 Olympic trials. I didn't even, I think I just, like, left. Didn't even cool down. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just like, no, I didn't even race, man. I just, like, I was in the warm-up field, and my agent came. He was like, how are you feeling? I was like, not good. He was like, you know what? I think I'm going to get on the bus and go back to the hotel. And I just, like, left and never looked back. That was it. That was it. I, that was my last track race, really, like, at that level. I didn't even race. I, had, I was training someone at that time, and he was with me, mm-hmm. so he ran. And he, and he didn't make the finals, so he was pretty distraught, too. So he quit that day, too. That was his last track race, too. When did you start to coach other runners? You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation how part of your vision for where we're at right now, running mm-hmm. in, running, was to have you know the la- the recovery yeah. lounge that we're yeah. sitting in for athletes that you work with to come and and take advantage of. You just mentioned this mm-hmm. guy at the 2012 trials yeah. that you were helping out. When did you start to dip your toes in that water? Yeah, he's one of the first guys that kind of let me know that I can do it. You know. Um, like Dave, David, you know, David Torrance, like I never coached him. I was a, a, an assistant coach when he was at Cal. But he, I always advised him, you know, always guided him or he would do workouts with me and stuff like that. Then eventually he was lucky enough to get like a real coach. Like, he, you know, he joined the John, John Cook group. Yep. So, you know, he was able to have a real. But, you know, there was it was always that kind of like coaching, like just guidance kind of thing. Yeah. But with with Yosef. Uh, and his brother Gilead, I, like I actually coached them, you know, like I gave wrote their schedule. Yeah, like yeah, they we did workouts together too because I was still competitive then, but we modified them maybe for Yosef or sometimes for Gilead because he likes to do longer stuff, whatever. Mm-hmm. And and we were more like it was great because I was their coach, but I was also their teammate. So it was the three of us, and we know the three of us are Eritreans too, and and so we had like a, a connection there, and they all went to Cal. So you're you like know. player coach in the group, kind of. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was fun and it was rewarding. And, and and it made me feel like really especially with Gilead because he had quit running he was so disappointed he was working a real job hadn't run in like a year and a half or two and I was like no dude you could do this you, you know brought him back. I brought him back and I inspired him to come back and I made him believe in himself and he came back and he made and he ran a 63 his first half ever you know and and that was, that was a good time you know to just not run for two years and come back and run 63 and a half and so he made it he also made it to the Olympic trials and that was great for him and Yosef same thing he he PR'd he ran 1334 which was like Yosef could he could have easily he can easily run like 1310s the dude ran like 850 in high school and he was like a sophomore or something he's, he's super talented you know but he also was one of those guys that just you know he didn't have the mental kind of strength and he would you know he would think everything was an injury so you know he had to build him build his confidence up in that way and we were doing a really good job but when we went to the trials and he saw that whole thing and, and I think that day I think like Galen I think he ran he kicked like a four flat or something in the final. And it was just kinda like 
I don't know, man. There was something odd about that to us, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean... Didn't look right. Yeah, he was just kind of like, yeah, there's some stuff happening here that is not really like... He knew he had no chance against that kind of program, especially the way we were doing it. Yeah. He was just like, I don't have a sponsor. I don't have a coach. I don't have what they have. And, you know, and they got the extra stuff, like all that. You know, I'm, I'm not wasting my life. So we lose a lot of runners to that, you know. Yeah, people don't say anything about it, but it's there. To what specifically? I mean, you know, the, the drugs and yeah. stuff like that, you know. Uh, I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything, but it's pretty obvious. I've been in the, strong, in the sport long enough to know what's clean and what's not. Was it a major problem when you were at the height of your oh, competitive big time. track? Career? I mean, come on, man. It's, it's loaded. I mean, everybody, especially like in Europe, Moroccans and stuff. Come on. These guys don't care. Has it gotten any better? No. I think, I think um, a lot more people are getting busted now. Yeah. We, and that's probably because a lot more people are doing it. A lot, of people, a lot more people have access to it. People straight up ask me. Back in the day, you know, when I went abroad and I met some of these runners that are kind of just struggling, they would ask you for power bar. Can you send me some power bar? But that was like code, code word. for something. You know, like you have access to that power bar, you know, whatever. And I'd be like, nah, man, I use goo, you know. I don't do the power bar. <laughs> I just got to play it off. <laughs> I just take these vitamins. Yeah, vitamin C and B12s and B vitamins, yeah, whatever. And then... Uh, Straight up, a few times I've been asked for EPO. Like, can you give me some EPO? You know? And I'm just like, first of all, you know, it's illegal to transport that kind of stuff across borders, borders, right? You know that. Secondly, like, I don't even know how to get it. Like, I think you need a prescription to get it, like, legally, you know? Because, you know, usually cancer patients or AIDS patients or something will have it. And then on top of that, even if I do get it for you, how are you going to administer this thing? You're going to kill people. You know, it's not an easy, simple thing. You just take a syringe and pop it in your veins. Like, there's other things that have to be done. You know, you can get blood clots and die. And, you know, this is a dangerous drug, you know. I've had some friends that actually died from it, too, you know, because they, they were doing it in a sloppy way. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, like, you know, just died. And so it's like, I'm not trying to be a part of that. And that's how I know it's prevalent because... If people like that can just get it from Mexico, you know, they go over here across the border, get it, and then they're trying it out on their friends, and the whole group is doing it, and, and people are dying. Like, it's not about, like, uh, USADA or WADA is more strict, but it's just there's a lot more of it out there. I got to ask you, were you ever tempted during your career to go to the dark side? Never, man, never. Like, dude, I'm, I've tried everything, though, like, supplement-wise. I've developed my own concoctions and stuff, but it's never, like steroids or testosterone or EPO or anything like that, you know? More so, natural vitamins. Yeah, we have vitamins too, you know, some stuff. Uh, they, you know, you put certain things together. This is a precursor for that, blah, blah. You drink this, you eat that. You know, you, you, you get... But you, it doesn't work, man. It's just better to just kind of go out there. It's good to have a supplement program, definitely. Like, I always took, like, you know, calcium, magnesium, zinc stuff to help you. You know, you sleep better that way. You recover better. Recovery stuff I believe in, you know, all the proteins and uh, vitamin C, B12. Yeah, stuff you uh, couldn't get yeah. through your natural I've diet. even done, like, these, uh, you know, IV vitamins, like cocktails, you know. Uh, they're, they're pretty good. They're just, it's just 
an extra kind of like safe way to make sure you're getting all your your people actually take them now. You can hear them on the Joe Rogan podcast. You know they always talk about these things. Well, I, I mean, I've seen them in different cities. They yeah. literally have like lounges where you like their businesses. Like yeah, you, you go could, there and you, you go in there and, and you get IVs, get right? IV, yeah, just yeah. You know right. the athletes always know about this stuff like ten years before everybody. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that was kind of like we, we were knowing back then. All this anti-aging or longevity stuff. Back then, you know, you were doing it, but it was kind of, but not to that extent of like, you know, it was never like testosterone or, or like, you know, the lands kind of stuff. It was never at that level. Like the stuff that you was still just trying, egregious. You still believed yeah. in being clean yeah. to that extent, you know, even though some people would be like, well, I can't get the Myers cocktail in East Africa, you know, because that's an advantage. I guess I can get it here, you know, yeah. but I'm not the one. It's, as long as it wasn't on a ban list, you know, you're cool, right? Caffeine used to be on the ban list. Like if you drink, if you had like, I remember it was a list that said if you drink more than eight cups of coffee or equivalent in caffeine pills, it's illegal, you know? Well, and then there's caffeine pills, no dose, yeah. like all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So that's an, you know, performance enhancing stuff. Is, it, is there a certain amount of pride that you hold looking back at your career and what you accomplished despite the disappointments to be like I know that I did it clean and not to accuse anyone explicitly but there were guys who finished ahead of me in certain races that I know weren't yeah and um, I do I, I, I commend myself for that and I also I'm humbled in a way and I also understand that um yeah, for me, I stuck to my morals and principles, you know? That's good for me mm-hmm. because I, that's what I believe in. But also there's something to be said about someone willing to take that kind of risk, you know, or that, take that chance or make that kind of sacrifice to actually take EPO. Or some people think it's like the people are just cheaters and they're just like these weasels, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, some people actually want it so bad or they need it because it's a transformational thing. I mean, do a little Ethiopian takes. kid, you know, makes a hundred thousand dollars in one race. That's trans. That will transform his life and generations after that. You know, mm-hmm. he's willing to make that kind of sacrifice. He's willing to go to that dark side. You know, the place that I'm not willing to go. Right. So is that really like, a, a, is that more, who has more courage there, you know? Yeah. Right. It, it's an inter- it's an interesting, like philosophical and, yeah. you know, ethical consideration. It is. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Cause I, I'll be like, I look at myself like, yeah, it takes a lot of discipline to say, to, to move, to not take the drugs, but also it takes a lot of courage to take it. And, but so I don't know, you know, I can't judge Mofar or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if he whatever i don't know anything about mofar i don't you can't say for sure you know mm-hmm. but whatever salazar was doing for his athletes obviously people thought it was it wasn't fair it was wrong right and but then again i don't know like is that really like a form of courage i don't know like because when lance right for lance armstrong people are now starting to really understand that like oh yeah he cheated but everybody was cheating but that wasn't really Lance's crime, right? Lance's crime was lying, lying and trying to hurt other people. That's why people don't like Lance is because he tried to hurt other people. Like, you know, it wasn't because he did something that everybody else was doing. Yeah. You know, 
So that's like, that's such a weird kind of like gray area there, you know, with the drug thing. That's why I don't even feel like you did. You know, every man does their own thing. I remember two sprinters going at it one day. One sprinter, you know, he saw a drastic improvement in another sprinter. And these guys were both like my friends. And they all of a sudden they weren't friends anymore. And that one guy was just like, he looked at the other guy. He was just like, yeah, I know. I know what you're doing. And the other guy was like, hey, got to do what you got to do. You know, and that was just his only response. And they, there was just, that's how they were talking to each other. Mm-hmm. But in a way, like, you know, what are you going to do? That guy, as long as he didn't get caught, he was never going to be wrong, you know? And the other guy just had to deal with it. Couldn't do anything about it. I don't know. Just... Most of the people that you competed against in your professional career have retired by this point or not competing at the level that they once were. Are you still a fan of the sport today? Do you follow it at the highest levels? Closely or loosely or yeah, you know, like I, even when I was competing, like like I told you, I I tried not to pay attention too much to the distance races just because of you know I just didn't want to know what was happening. Mm-hmm. That was my way of kind of just focusing on what I was doing. So yeah, I'm not like I don't follow it closely, you know. But I kind of generally know what's going on. If something happens, I know. But I'm I don't even watch the 49ers game anymore. I don't watch basketball like i just don't i've never been like a sports guy you know i don't watch like sports like that you know but uh, yeah i i I appreciate i appreciate like athleticism for sure and i do watch the olympics and i and i can turn on a race and just kind of like you're not like following it week to week to week to week yeah yeah yeah, i never find even like i can watch any football game and just enjoy the hell out of it because i just i'm i'm more like a a coach and i just watch for movements i i love movements you know and, and when I watch in a marathon, I'm just watching everybody's feet and their knee drives and their arm movement. I'm just watching, like, body, biomechanical stuff. Yeah. So in that sense, it's, like, it's fulfilling to me in that way. But the competitive aspect of it, this guy did that, that guy did this, she did... I, it's just not that important to me anymore. And even for me as an athlete, I still run every day just for that purpose, to just check in, you know, just to be, like... You know, to try out new drills, to try out new strength programs, you know. I go do the workout before I give it to the athletes that I coach just to make sure the workout's yeah. legit you're, and it's doing what it's pit. doing. The track is okay. The surface is fine. You know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. How many athletes do you coach? Well, right now, I, I, I mean, you know, you lose athletes like crazy because if you don't got sponsors for them, it's like Ellis is the, the only middle distance runner mm-hmm. I'm coaching. And then uh, I was coaching a, a couple of guys in the marathon, but... They're kind of uh, deciding to just kind of stay in the, like the 230 zone right now. Yeah. So they don't need me much. So they just kind of do their own thing. But I still, you know, just kind of hang out and, and do runs with them and everything. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of like I can coach somebody to go a little bit fat. You know, if they're trying to hit standards, like make the Olympic team or whatever, that's the kind of coaching I really am interested yeah. in doing. Like the recreational kind of, kind of coaching, that, fi- that final like five percent, yeah, to get to that ultimate level. Yeah, yeah. That's what. That's I think. I, I think I'm probably better at that than mm-hmm. just kind of writing workouts for people to just yeah. run under three hours in a marathon or whatever. Yeah, I've taken a lot of your time, so I'll wind this yeah, one down. No it's kind of been a theme throughout this conversation: the evolution of your relationship with running. And you just sort of touched on it right now, but what is running mean to you at the age of 43 years old as someone who has been in the sport for almost 30 years now um i mean yeah i used to really try hard to not i used to fight the the whole like i'm a runner 
identity, you know, when I was competitive Yeah, running. that's what that's what I'm interested yeah. in. And, like, uh, is it a big part of your identity? It is, it is. It's everything now. It's, it's a lifeline for me now. That's Everything revolves around running, you know, and everything is running to me. Uh, and running, like I told you, like, because I've, I've implement, I implement that same, everything I do has that same approach, you know? So that's why I need to go run every day to make sense of things, you know, to stay in touch with everything else that I do. So... Uh, like I mean, my family they know when I have not run and I'm run and I have run, you know. They kick you out the door. Yeah, that they tell me like go run. My wife does. The yeah, same you're thing. acting. Yeah, you're acting <laughs> weird, you know. So it's kind of like, of course, there's I, that's probably like just the chemicals and stuff, you yeah. know. But but yeah, it, it just it is. I need it, and I'm and I get scared because I've seen a lot of a lot of uh, you know. I'm 43, I guess, and I have older friends now. I have people in their 50s and 60s and older, you know. They're getting Alzheimer's disease. They're losing their mind, you know, their memory. And these are, like, highly intelligent people, you know. Just imagine, like, a super, like, just brain person who reads more, just losing that tool, you know. Just like if I was to lose my legs or something. It's hard to see. Yeah, it's like something that drives me. I've experienced some of it in my own life. Yeah. It's tough. You've had an injury or something or, or some people in your family you've got. Yeah, it's just like it's a scary thing, you know. So so it's that, it's to that extent is what running has become to me is like I can't, I don't even want to imagine, you know, life without running, you know. And um, I remember, I remember one time uh, uh, this, this, this girl, New Zealand runner, I forgot her last name, but I think it's Kim Collins. Is it Kim Collins? Um, she ran at Providence? Yeah. Kim Smith? Kim Smith. Man, that girl. I have never seen anybody. That girl was going to run. I love watching No matter her race. what. Mm-hmm. She was going to run, man. She's so inspiring. And that girl, I remember, I don't even drink beer. She can drink more beer than, than anybody <laughs> I've ever seen. She's so tiny, you know? But she get up and just, I did like, I, I, I met her in Europe one time, and I just was like, this is an amazing woman, you know? So I, and I was running with her and everything. And one day, I guess she ended up in a hospital for something. So tough. Dude, this girl, she was like, no matter what, she was going to run. You know, I don't remember they were telling her to take something or not take something or something, but she was just like, I don't care if it kills me, I'm going to run, you know? And so, you know, I, I get it. I get that, you know. And, and, and when I saw her do that, and I was just like, I can't be like that. I got to make sure that I have something else that I can do that's going to give me this level of, like, stability and sanity if, if I can't run one day, you know. It's a scary thought. It is a, it is a scary thought. And yeah. I, th- I think especially, too, you know, we come from different backgrounds mm-hmm. and have different stories, but we're both like mostly lifelong competitive athletes mm. who've been on that side of the sport. Yeah. We're both deeply embedded in our communities, which are built around running. Mm-hmm. Um, our careers ostensibly are, are in running. I mean, I know you've done some other stuff too outside of it, but you know what you're doing here, Renegade Running, it's mm-hmm. in the name. Like yeah. it's, you know, it, it's in running. I mean, a lot of the most meaningful relationships that we have in our mm-hmm. lives, our mm-hmm. former teammates, training partners, yeah. coaches who have had, you know, that, that impact on us. And it is a lifeline yeah. in that way. And it is scary to think about what life would be like without it. Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with that. I've tried to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I majored in philosophy. Yeah. So thinking and sitting there with my thoughts is, you know, is, is not something that I'm, I'm usually scared of. But yeah. that's like one of the scariest thoughts to be like, yeah. if I didn't have this in my life, like what would I what yeah. would I do? Um, yeah. And and where I've landed is, 
I think even if you know I lost my legs or something, that would be devastating because mm-hmm. I am someone who is compulsive in that I run every day, not necessarily to chase a performance goal. Yeah, I still have those, but because I'm a better version of myself when I get out the mm-hmm. door every mm-hmm. day. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a better Mario in every way. I'm a better husband. I'm a better coach. I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a better friend. I'm a better family member, yeah, uh, sure. better member of my community when, when I can do that. And I don't like to think about what would happen if I, if I couldn't go out and, and do that, but I feel like I'd still be connected to certainly the people that yeah. I've, I've met through running and like what I'm trying to do through this podcast. And why I think this conversation in particular mm-hmm. has been so powerful is to show people what's possible for themselves through this lens of running, mm-hmm. whether it's an athletic pursuit, whether it's a career path, whether it's the people that you surround yourself mm-hmm. with, like running can give that to you. Yeah. You can, yeah. Just like everything else, though, you know, it's a price to pay when you make some kind of commitment, there is. you know? Yeah. Yeah. There is. It's a I marriage. Mean, it's like a marriage, you know? Whatever. Yeah. And, and like any, any marriage or any relationship, yeah. really, it's going to have its ups and its downs and yeah. its highs and its lows. I had this guy on the podcast almost two years ago now. He's one of my favorite writers. His name is Devin Kelly. Mm-hmm. And... He's, he's not very old in terms of his actual age. I, I don't even think he's 30 mm. yet, but he's experienced a lot yeah. in his life. And one thing he said in this conversation, he conveys it so beautifully, so I hope I don't butcher it, but he says, you know, running is like anything else in my life. It's like it's given me my highest highs, mm-hmm. but it's also given me my lowest lows. Yeah. And to, you know, to bring something up that you talked about earlier, it makes him feel alive. Mm-hmm. You know, it... it it helps to kind of put that numbness yeah. away. Um, yeah. And even if it's, you know, a run where you don't feel great when you're out there, but, you know, you're just reminded that you're yeah. alive. And I think that's one of the most beautiful aspects of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. See, we're all alike, man. The runners, you know. Well, that's why it's important yeah, it's to great. share these stories. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we're, we're as different as two guys could mm-hmm. be, but yeah. we we have this this bond i'm just meeting you for the first time in person but we have this bond that's largely unspoken that that we share you know through this sport that's been a big part of us and um i thank you for this past like two plus hours i don't even know how long we've been going i haven't seen the the recorder i know i've been here for for a long time and i'm super appreciative of your time and i mean i've recorded nearly 200 episodes of this podcast and this isn't uh knock on any of the other conversations that I've had. I've enjoyed every Mm -hmm. single one of them. I've gotten to meet some tremendous people through this journey, but this is my favorite conversation that I've had for the Morning Shakeout podcast. I can't thank you enough. Oh, no, thank you. Likewise. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Recover Athletics for supporting this episode of the show. Tracksmith's No Days Off collection is designed to help you weather Mother Nature's worst and features staples for getting out the door in the most miserable of conditions. Go to tracksmith.com Mario to check out some of my favorite apparel picks and use the code Mario at checkout. That's M-A-R-I-O to get free shipping on your order while also helping support L.A saves track. Recover Athletics has worked with the world's best sports physicians and Olympians like Meb Kofleski to design an app that makes prehab fun and easy. 
In 90 seconds, the app will customize a program for your body and your training with different resistance exercises, plyometrics, and mobility work. No pills, no potions, no BS, just 100% evidence-based exercises that are easy to follow on your iPhone or iPad. It's available only in the iOS app store right now by searching Recover Athletics or by clicking the link in this episode's show notes couple more things before we wrap up i'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer john summerford who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing also thank you to jeffrey stern for running the am shakeout social media accounts and chris douglas for handling sponsorship sales last thing if you are digging this podcast i think you will love my newsletter it's also called the morning shakeout and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, 5-10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.